BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Early in the morning, March 28, 1979, equipment failures and a stuck open relief valve prevented the removal of heat from the Three Mile Island Unit 2 Nuclear Reactor's core, an essential function that prevents reactor damage. And within hours, it seemed like things were on the brink of a catastrophic nuclear crisis. Nobody, or almost nobody, there were people very opposed to nuclear power in general before the meltdown, thought that Three Mile Island would be the site of a major nuclear disaster. The plant had been built in 1974 on a sandbar on Pennsylvania's Susquehanna River, just 10 miles downstream from the state capital in Harrisburg. In 1978, a second state-of-the-art reactor began operating on Three Mile Island, which was lauded for generating affordable and reliable energy in a time of an American energy crisis. But soon, Unit 2 would become a crisis of its own. In the days following March 28th, panic ensued as people wondered whether or not to evacuate trying to figure out what was going on from the plant's limited press releases and the government's confusing messages. Journalists stoked the fires of paranoia, implying that the conflicting information given by different sources, many of whom didn't know what was going on yet, amounted to some kind of conspiracy. Dun, dun, dun! Though the crisis would quickly be over, on April 10th, 1979, the effects were long-lasting. All in all, experts determined that the approximately 2 million people in the nearby area during the accident were exposed to very small amounts of radiation. The estimated average radiation dose was about 1 millirem, above the area's natural background of about 100 to 125 millirems per year. Uh, to put this into further context, exposure from a chest x-ray is about 6 to 10 millirems. Doesn't sound as scary when you put it in perspective, right? The accident's exposure had no detectable health effects on the plant workers or the surrounding public officially. But did it really? Anecdotally, there have been numerous claims. Gene Trimmer, a 54-year-old farmer living in the area, would describe very strange symptoms after the Three Mile Island incident, saying about three weeks later, white hairs appeared all through the front of my hair and the tops of my eyebrows were white. The hair came out in my comb in unbelievable amounts. I can now see my scalp through the thin hair on the front half of my head. 
I've lost my left kidney completely. It just dried up and disappeared with no medical explanation, whatever. To this day, the discoloration is still visible on my arms and my neck. Red spots still appear on my face, arms, legs, breasts, shoulders, abdomen with alarming regularity. I can assure you that TMI is an ever-present fear in my life because the physical evidence is something I see daily. The traumatic fear within me cannot be seen by anyone, nor felt by anyone else, but it is there constantly in my mind. Obviously, how terrible for Gene if all of this can be attributed to Three Mile Island. But also, kidneys, from what I can tell after doing uh, so many different kinds of uh, word searches on the internet, they don't just dry up and disappear inside of your body. like. Like ever, like not once in all of recorded human history. So maybe Gene misspoke or maybe Gene is batshit crazy. Regardless of the accuracy of this and other similar testimonies, this incident greatly eroded the public's faith in nuclear power, something which had been on the forefront of American minds since the advent of atomic technology during World War II. This one incident drastically changed the path of energy production in America. So what happened at Three Mile Island? How close were we to some kind of total nuclear disaster? What was the true magnitude of the crisis? Who was to blame? And should we finally get over what happened and reinvest more aggressively, maybe much, much more aggressively in nuclear power? All of this and more on today's very explosive, apocalyptic edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, the Master Sucker, Art Expert, Consumer of Whipple, a chill. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina. Praise be to good boy Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, recording this a few weeks in advance now, which will hopefully be the norm going forward. I've uh, been working double time to get ahead on all this content so I can have a little more flexibility in my personal life and ideally craft better episodes going forward. Uh, they don't feel rushed. Uh, that said, uh, up next on the very fun Burn It All Down tour, as you hear this, uh, Pontiac, Michigan and Indianapolis are the next venues, next cities. Not many tickets left in Indy, if any. So thank you. Uh, should be some for Michigan. And then it is off to New Orleans. Philadelphia, Cleveland, and Columbus, and then brand new material time. I've been making a lot of notes. I'll be in Phoenix, April 21st and 22nd, Bloomington, Indianapolis, May 4th, 5th, and 6th. So if you can't get tickets to Indy, come see me in Bloomington. Uh, And I'll be in Madison, Wisconsin, May 11th, 12th, and 13th. You can come watch me suffer through trying to make some brand new ideas funny. All tickets at dancummins.tv. We have our charity picked out for March. Don't know the amount, but I know we are donating to Sleep in Heavenly Peace. Sleep in Heavenly Peace. Sleep in Heavenly Peace is a group of volunteers who build, assemble, and deliver beds to families in need of beds. Never getting a good night's rest uh, has you starting off every day at a disadvantage. That's especially terrible when you're a kid going through school. Uh, this wonderful organization has chapters all across the U.S. And if you want to get involved, uh, you can, uh, uh, or if you want to offer up your skills, you can go to shpbeds.org to learn more. Uh, Link in the episode description. And now for this week's feature merch announcement. Now available in the Bad Magic Store from the upcoming blockbuster The Night Witches featuring Sophie Turner, Timothy Chalamet, John Goodman, and Jennifer Lawrence. Bad Magic Production presents the official movie poster merchandise 
The classically designed advert features our star actors, a couple planes, and yes, Chilapata Magnum Centipede, Chasey Nazi Fucks. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com and grab your tea or wall art today. So that was fun. Uh, and one more thing, the Cummins Family Scholarship Fund presented by Bad Magic is now here. It's active this year. We will award three $5,000 scholarships to three very deserving people in our community. All the details on how to apply will be in this episode description. Uh, to apply, you, you visit learnmore.scholarsapply.org slash comments slash it's wordy. So again, just look at the episode description for this information. The application process open right now. Uh, again, just check out uh, the information in the episode description. There's more info there. Questions can also be emailed to Cummins at scholarshipamerica.org and you can apply all the way until April 24th. All right, and now back to a... Uh, a topic we have mentioned very recently in the Sullivanians episode, the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster. Nuclear. Nuclear. That's how I'm going to say it. Uh, pronunci- pronunciation, please. Listen up. I've checked the guides. I've listened to videos. And it sounds correct to me when I say it. I think it is correct. There's a couple different ways you can say it. If it irritates you, uh, watch a few videos yourself. See how other people say nuclear. Everyone talks a little differently. Don't let it blow up the episode for you. Uh, the space Spaceers voted to suck on some nuclear power, so suck it we shall. Let us begin. So we know, I'm assuming, that Three Mile Island was a nuclear accident. Well, of course we do, because I, I said that just a few minutes ago. Uh, what else was it? Uh, there have been, uh, or had been, several previous nuclear accidents, incidents, in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. in the years before Three Mile Island, and none of them set off nearly the same kind of frenzy. So what made Three Mile Island so special? Did a lot of people die? Literally none. Yeah, uh, but did a bunch of people die later from the effects of being exposed to dangerous amounts of radiation? No, literally none. Zero. Nada. I'm sure many of you have heard differently or at least believed differently. I'll share some reports at the end of this episode that speak to what I'm saying here. So did a bunch of people get really sick or wounded in some way because of the Three Mile Island incident? Maybe grow an extra mutant eye or some kind of toxic limb? Did a lot of women give birth to three-headed nuke front, du- uh, front butt dumps? I can never say that. In the years that followed. No, uh, none of that happened, again, according to many, many studies that I'll speak to later. But if a full meltdown would have occurred, millions and millions of people would have died, right? Still no, that's actually not how it works. Uh, as of May 2022, there were 439 nuclear reactors in operation in some 30 countries around the world. Dozens of reactors uh, have been in operation previously that are no longer active. Nuclear power has been around since the mid-1950s, over half a century now. And there isn't any conclusive evidence that any problem at a nuclear reactor has ever created truly mass fatalities, right? I know mass fatalities is, is a bit subjective, but there hasn't been an incident that's led to like thousands of deaths or even hundreds of deaths that we know of for sure. Maybe in 1957 in Russia, the top secret uh, Mayak nuclear reactor disaster led to thousands of deaths or maybe less than a hundred. The Soviet Union did their best to uh, hide what happened. But still, when I was looking around, I was shocked that there hasn't been more death associated with nuclear meltdowns. Nuclear bombs, yes. Nuclear meltdowns, no. You know, uh, not nearly as much death has been associated with, say, plane crashes. For example, in 1977 in Spain, two Boeing 747s collided on a runway killing everyone on one plane, most of the people on the other, 583 people, uh, 583 people died, and more people died in this one flight disaster than in the history of nuclear disasters and incidents worldwide. 
not counting the Mayak disaster or Chernobyl, where we really can't, you know, trust reporting. Uh, less than 250 people have died in total in, in, in all the world's nuclear power plant accidents and incidents combined. The entire history of nuclear power. That's wild, right? And I know, I know, who knows uh, how much cancer did result from many of these accidents that governments have not reported or power plants have refused to take responsibility for, insurance companies won't acknowledge, etc. There's a lot of speculation. But still, even if you took these extra deaths into account, there hasn't been, say, some massive, just colossal explosion. And there won't be. There is so much most of us just do not understand about nuclear power. For example, do you know it is literally impossible for a nuclear power plant to create the same kind of explosion as a nuclear bomb. The laws of physics like will not allow it. In a nuclear weapon, radioactive atoms are packed densely enough within a small chamber to initiate an instantaneous explosive chain reaction. A reactor is far too large to produce the density and heat needed to create that kind of nuclear explosion. So why is there still interest and concern about Three Mile Island? Why did the partial meltdown there cause a panic that altered the course of nuclear power plant development in the U.S. like significantly? After the meltdown, the number of reactors under construction in the U.S. just, you know, just almost just completely went away, right? Just uh, nothing opened. I mean, just for, for, oh, years and years and years. I'll I'll talk about that at the end too. Alan Mazur, a professor at Maxwell School of Public Affairs at Syracuse, Syracuse University, describes Three Mile Island as a melodramatic media event which dominated almost 40% of the evening evening news on television networks during the first week following the meltdown. And all that coverage was very sensationalized and very problematic for PR when it came to nuclear energy. The coverage was not straightforward, not at all. Reporters had to balance covering the technological complexity of Three Mile Island, a facility they really didn't understand, along with background information about science and politics, much of which they also did not understand, with personal accounts of the incidents that were completely anecdotal. Uh, Asking random reporters to explain a nuclear meltdown ended up being a lot like asking a bunch of kindergartners to explain calculus. They had no fucking idea what they were talking about, but they knew their competitors were quickly writing articles and putting together teleprompter notes for news anchors. So fuck it. Gotta say something. Let's hope we kind of get it right when we report on this. In addition to blatant sensationalism, statements from Metropolitan Edison, the owner of the plant, and various experts were often contradictory or confusing. It took a couple days for the big brains who could understand all of this to figure out what had actually happened, but the public didn't want to wait for a few days. So a lot of people were talking about shit they didn't understand or didn't understand yet. You know, the people who did understand didn't have the complete picture and they had a hard time dumbing things down for the masses as well. The partial meltdown of a nuclear power plant was, as it turned out, harder to describe than, say, a forest fire, right? Even cavemen could probably, you know, accurately convey the dangers of a fire, forest fire, uh, you know, well to other cavemen. Just fire, bad, fire come, big fire, Uh, fire hurt, too hot, fire kill, run. But, you know, a lot more complex with a partial meltdown. Alan Mazier, again, that same professor, noted that other technology-based accidents around the same time as Three Mile Island, like the crash of a commercial DC-10 airliner in 1979, received less media attention despite a number of fatalities, even though Three Mile Island didn't have any fatalities. So why was that? Arguably, it was because plane crashes involve limited casualties and a limited impact zone. Although clearly a tragic event, there is a limit to how many people can be killed in a plane crash and a limit to how much environmental destruction can be caused. If you weren't on the plane, if the plane didn't crash on you, well, you, you don't have shit to worry about, right? Nothing to be afraid of. 
But if you believe that a nuclear meltdown could kill millions of people, and now there has been some kind of meltdown, you know, you possibly have a lot to worry about. You could die soon or die a few years down the road from cancer or some other disease caused by the meltdown. With a nuclear accident, the scope of human and environmental impact can be much, much bigger. But again, I don't believe in the way many people think or thought then. A power plant is not a bomb. Very different. And now we arrive back at the ability to understand potential dangers. Right? People actually understand plane crashes and their ramifications. Right? Plane fall fast, too fast. Oh, people splat, fast splat, make dead. But nuclear accidents, much harder to comprehend. Nuke make um, a magic juice, juice for talking box, uh, juice for light, T- too much juice, head glow, maybe too much juice, extra arm, maybe juice get out, too much, nuke juice, rod hot, too hot, boom, boom, no, maybe b- hot help. It's fucking confusing. Still, other nuclear incidents didn't get nearly the same level of attention as, you know, TMI. Uh, the Windscale Fire in the UK in 1957 received a lot less media attention than Three Mile Island and the accident at Brown's Ferry in Athens, Alabama, four years earlier uh, when a fire started after a worker slash genius looked for air leaks with a fucking candle uh, received considerably less attention. Why? What was unique about Three Mile Island? Well, several different factors led to the additional attention. One, the accident coincided with a major environmentalist movement that was gaining steam in America in the 1970s. Not only were there protests for the environment like Earth Day, but environmentalism had become a a major theme in other media of the day. Concerns showing up in a lot of movies. You know, there were were several movies speculating about the dangers of nuclear power specifically in the years preceding this event. And uh, bad luck for uh, the people who ran through my island. One very popular movie debuted in theaters nationwide just 12 days before the incident at Three Mile Island, The China Syndrome, featuring Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, and Jack Lemmon. Big movie, nominated for four Academy Awards, did a lot of money at the box office, and the plot of the movie? While doing a series of reports on alternative energy sources, a reporter, Kimberly Wells, witnesses an accident at a nuclear power plant. Wells is determined to report the incident, but soon finds herself entangled in a sinister conspiracy to keep the full impact of the incident. A secret. Holy shit. A movie about the real dangers of a nuclear accident being covered up is in theaters nationwide. When a big nuclear accident occurs, uh, that, you know, through confusing information being reported about it appears as if it is being covered up. What are the fucking odds? Now for the second factor causing this incident to receive a, a disproportionate amount of attention, Three Mile Island's location of Pennsylvania made it easily accessible for a shit ton of reporters for major cities like New York, Philly, D.C., and Boston to quickly jump on this story and to maybe not take their time in their competition to break the news to actually get the story right. And then three, this happened at a time when President Jimmy Carter was pushing the nuclear energy program on the American public hard. For decades, in fact, the U.S. government had been trying to turn people's view of nuclear power away from the destruction that began with Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the chaos of the early Cold War era towards a view of atomic energy as beneficial yeah i mean uh killing over two hundred thousand people in the initial explosions in japan plus the untold thousands who died in the following years was not a great pr introduction for the general public to feel okay with anything nuclear uh cleaning up nuclear power's image culminated with eisenhower's atoms for peace movement which had even hired titans from pop culture like walt disney to produce material educating the public on the actual benefits of nuclear power 
And the four nuclear powers showed up at a time when American trust in the government was quickly eroding. The Vietnam War had eroded Americans' trust in traditional authority, and the Watergate scandal, just a few years before the partial meltdown, alerted people to the fact that shady shit, you know, sometimes happens behind closed doors in Washington. What else are they hiding from the American public? People wondered. The dangers, the true dangers of nuclear power? Since all of these factors are important to understanding the media sensation that unraveled around this partial meltdown, we're going to touch on all of them during today's timeline. And as important as it is to think about how what had happened in the past influenced how Three Mile Island was perceived, also important to think about how people were considering the future. As the 1980s approached and the human race crept closer to a new millennium, the use of nuclear power in the future was falling under increasing scrutiny. Unit 2, where the partial meltdown occurred, it only opened the previous year. This was not a case of an old-ass plant experiencing age-related problems after years of faithful service. This was a brand new unit already breaking down. And if a new unit could almost, you know, uh, dangerously break down, then how worried should everyone be about the older plants scattered around America? Had Three Mile Island had a full meltdown and, you know, a containment zone been placed around it similar to the one placed around Chernobyl, around 500,000 people in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania metro area would have been displaced and a state capital would have been immediately turned into a ghost town. And the area could have remained uninhabitable for literally thousands of years. You know, so people are wondering what other reactors are on the verge of a full meltdown. Today, we'll be talking about a whole system of understanding nuclear power as it relates to the government, pop culture, media coverage, and more. We can call this intersection nuclear culture. How did nuclear culture develop in the United States? And how did that culture affect the outcome of the story of Three Mile Island? You know, we've covered the scientific side of nuclear power and and the military side of nuclear power in previous sucks, like the Manhattan Project in Chernobyl. It's going to be fun to cover this from a different angle today. Uh, the way nuclear culture began, the average American's introduction to all things nuclear, the Manhattan Project and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, again, not great from a PR standpoint. While the scientists developing the atomic bomb with the Manhattan Project had known about nuclear power for years and really known about it, the average citizen, well, they woke up in early August 1945 to some new bombs and a new future. From the get-go, nuclear power was widely associated with the mass destruction of people. And as different countries began developing their own nuclear weapons, you know, in the post-World War II years, the fear of isolated mass destruction grew to encompass a worldwide nuclear apocalypse. Think about the concept of an apocalypse and how it's associated with uh, nuclear. Although historically the term apocalypse is linked to a, a biblical meaning, some type of second coming of a killer Christ scenario I've talked about in a lot of cult sucks, Today, the word apocalypse has come to have a more secular meaning regarding widespread disaster, often alluding to a, an immense cataclysm or destruction. And anecdotally, I feel like the word nuclear now precedes apocalypse more than any other word. Again, that's not good PR, right? The word nuclear is associated primarily, I would argue, not with energy, but with the death of the entire fucking planet. Robert J. Lifton, a historian of nuclear culture, has argued that ideas of nuclear extinction revolutionized how most of us view a possible apocalypse today. No longer associated with God for many, if not most Americans, it is associated with nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons, you know, didn't seem too far removed from nuclear energy with the Three Mile Island incident. A nuclear power plant was viewed as being a potential weapon itself, a ticking apocalyptic time bomb. Okay, I feel ready now. I feel ready to push the fucking button. Ready to push the button that is going to blow this whole fucking episode wide open. The Time Suck Timeline button. Strap on those boots, soldier. 
We're marching down a time-suck timeline. August 2nd, 1939. Albert, cousin fucker, Einstein. Look it up if you haven't heard that episode. Not lying. Wrote to President, non-cousin fucker, F.D. Roosevelt, uh, about the research Enrico Fermi, known as the godfather of the atomic bomb, and Leo Szilard had been conducting and announced the element uranium may be turned into a new and important source of energy in the immediate future. Einstein's first concern is this letter was the delivery of a message about nuclear energy. However, in the third paragraph, Einstein presented the sobering fact that this same technology, quote, would also lead to the construction of bombs. And of course, he was right. It's almost like he was a genius or something. Maybe not a, a genius when it came to picking a non-closely related marriage partner, but for sure a genius in most other things. In 1942, like we've mentioned in many previous sucks, the Manhattan Project is formed to create the world's first nuclear bomb. The first successful controlled nuclear chain reaction is achieved by Enrico Fermi's team at the University of Chicago. Initially, the need for nuclear bombs was not only more pressing than nuclear power, but more noteworthy as well. As commented on in the 1945 Smith Report by physicist H.D. Smith, he wrote, the expected military advances of uranium bombs were far more spectacular than those of a uranium power plant. And if you listen to some of our World War II episodes, you know what's coming next, right? Following successful testing in uh, Alamo, Alamogordo, New Mexico on July 16th, 1945, Japan became the first victim of the atomic bomb when Little Boy detonates on Hiroshima, August 6th, 1954, followed by Fat Man detonating, detonating on Nagasaki, August 9th. And again, over 200,000 people die in just the initial explosions, plus the untold thousands who died in the following years. And that same year, the Manhattan Project scientists started the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. This um, newsletter slash magazine is created because the scientists involved in atomic development, quote, could not remain aloof to the consequences of their work. And then the book, The Atomic Age Opens, is published shortly after the bombs are dropped. It articulates the potential peaceful use of the atom saying atomic fission holds great promise for sweeping development by which our civilization may be enriched when peace comes. But the overriding necessities of war have precluded the full exploration of peacetime application of this new knowledge with the evidence presently at hand. However, it appears inevitable that many useful, that many useful contributions to the well-being of mankind will ultimately flow from these discoveries when the world situation makes it possible for science and industry to concentrate on these aspects. At least initially, the public response to the atom bomb and its use in Japan is positive. I mean, outside of Japan, of course. Uh, not a real popular move for the people who actually got fucking bombed, obviously. I doubt there was anyone over there just laying in a hospital bed, shitting blood, skin and hair, literally falling off, infections and ulcers all over their bodies, their insides starting to fucking liquefy, and they're just all, yay, nukes. I love nukes so much. What a ride. Late August 1945 in America, though, postcards advertising a showing of the atomic bomb explosion are mailed out and received happily. The advertisement by Embassy Newsreel Theater for New York and Pennsylvania seemed to celebrate the nuclear event by referring to the end of the war using uppercase and exclamation marks to promote excitement. See, for the first time, the devastating force of the new bomb that brought an abrupt end to the Pacific War. Just fuck yeah, bro. The card highlights the selling points of the event. The newness of the technology, the extraordinary power, the link between America's new weapon and the conclusion of the war. And all very legitimate. 1946, the U.S. begins testing more nuclear weapons at Bikini Atoll, uh, which they will continue until 1958. And it seems like anecdotally, America is uh, all for it. 
right? Let those fucking Ruski commies know who has the biggest dick in the international weapons game. On August 1st, 1946, President Harry S. Truman signs the Atomic Energy Act, which allows atomic energy to fall under civilian control. The United States Atomic Energy Commission, AEC, is formed to help secure peaceful atomic power. Simultaneously, the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, JCAE, is also formed. And then in 1947, a very interesting movie comes out. Brick Bradford. In this very strange film, released as 15 serialized episodes playing before the main movies of the week at theaters across America, Brick is assigned by the U.S. government to aid Dr. Gregor Tymak, scientist and inventor, working on an interceptor ray for destroying incoming rockets. And that part of the ray is super cool. Like, really fucking cool. Unfortunately, the ray can also be used as a death ray that can obliterate anything in the world. Right? And that's a little uh, iffy. People are worried. And that brings it to the attention of this foreign spy guy named Ladron. And in order to escape from Ladron, Timac has to use his fifth dimension portal door. And that door sends him to the far side of the moon, where luckily he can breathe. But unluckily, Queen Kana lives there. And she's cool to people she thinks are from Earth. But she doesn't think Timac is from Earth, even though he is. And she senses him to be frozen to death. So that's a bummer. Luckily, he still has his death ray. But he uh, he can't use it without linarium. So he has to go get some on the moon with the help of some other people. Don't even worry about him. Uh, but then he still can't use his death ray because it, it also requires a formula that has been hidden on an uncharted island 200 years in the past. Not sure why the formula won't still be around 200 years later. So he can't grab it now. Uh, uh, but the, he has to find a time machine which he does. Then uh, there's more trouble from la- later on the fucking spy uh, back in the present. And then Columbia Pictures decides to stop funding Brick Bradford because it's fucking dumb and kind of fizzles out. So yeah, that was a thing. But also in February of 1947, another very interesting movie comes out that actually relates to this week's topic. I just fell into a little Brick Bradford wormhole and wanted to share it. The beginning or the end usually accredited uh, as the first film to document the development of the nuclear bomb. Released by MGM, The Beginning or the End, presented a dramatized account of the Manhattan Project, packaged along with a rather wooden love story and some moralizing message about the significance of the new nuclear era. Although it was heavily promoted and in fact received an Oscar for its special effects, the film was neither a critical nor a commercial success. It It was a bomb itself in many ways. But while the beginning or the end has been largely forgotten except by students in nuclear culture, the story of its making still has much to tell us about early attitudes towards the atomic bomb, nuclear power in general, uh, especially about how different groups sought to uh, shape attitudes. The movie got its start in an odd way just after the end of the war. Actress Donna Reed, uh, who was James Stewart's wife in It's a Wonderful Life, and a meat sack who starred in over 40 films, she learned that her former Iowa chemistry teacher, Edward R. Tompkins, worked on the Manhattan Project at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And she wrote him to thank him for his service. And then he wrote back with a movie pitch. Showbeats, that's how they do it in Hollywood. Let me spank that fat bottom, Donna. And then how about you feed me some of that piping hot, fresh out of press peanut butter? Albert Fish, that hot, hard, serial-killing father-daddy dripping in fresh apple cider. Never going to go completely away. Uh, he really did send in a movie pitch uh, back, though. He had become active in the Association of Oak Ridge Scientists, part of the so-called scientist movement, along with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists that aimed at educating the public about the dangers of nuclear weapons and shaping government policy on their control. Uh, He told Reed that he and some other members of the movement thought that a Hollywood movie would provide an excellent way to get their message across to the broadest possible audience. They wanted the public to be aware of the possible dangers of nuclear weapons. And what better way to do that than in a feature-length film? As it happened, Reed's husband, Tony Owen, was a movie producer and agent, 
and he soon managed to interest MGM producer Sam Marks in this project. Hoping to secure government cooperation, Marks and Tompkins now traveled to Washington, D.C., meet with top officials, including the president, Harry Truman. Truman reportedly told them he hoped they would make their film and use it to tell the men and women of the world that they are at the beginning or the end. Man, that's, that's intense. <laughs> that's intense. I picture President Truman saying this in a completely dark room where he sits alone, just staring at a wall. Presidential aide opens the door to ask him a question. Just, uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, how would you like to respond to that movie request? And then he spins around to face the aide, but remains completely in the dark. Yes, we do need to make a movie for the American public. They need to know that the end is likely near. All may be lost. Yes, we won the war, but at the cost of our very likely doom. The beginning or the end. I say end. The reaper comes for us all. And then he just like spins around and just silently stares at the wall again. Anyway, when he said what he said, producer Sam Marks replied, Mr. President, you've given us our title. And the project was underway. Early drafts of the screenplay followed the line laid uh, out by Tompkins and others in the scientist movement, emphasizing the horrors of nuclear war and uh, in a climactic scene depicting burned bodies in the ruins of Hiroshima. Jesus Christ. This is a fucking intense movie they're making. <laughs> this is not helping the uh, nuclear power cause in America. Just associating uh, anything nuclear again with just death, death. Uh, the script went through many revisions as different groups and individuals, you know, vied to shape his message. And I get they want to make sure people know about the, you know, dangers of the weapons. Uh, a lot of the time required a studio to obtain a signed release from any living person it wished to depict in a movie. And various figures who had been involved in the atomic bomb story used the ensuing negotiations to try to influence and tone and content of the screenplay. So it keeps like changing. Some scientists, notably uh, Niels Bohr, simply refused to cooperate with what they thought would inevitably be a shallow and distorted treatment of historic events. And they were dropped from the story. J. Robert Oppenheimer shared his distaste. The characters, he said, seemed stilted, lifeless, and without purpose or insight. But pressured by the studio, he reluctantly signed a release. Uh, MGM was especially eager to land Albert Einstein. Studio head Louis B. Mayer tried to assure, uh, assuage excuse me, his concern that the script distorted the historical record by explaining that Dramatic truth is just as compelling a requirement on us as veritable truth is on a scientist. Uh, Mayer never explained exactly what he meant by dramatic truth, but it evidently involved sticking close enough to Hollywood formulas to ensure the film would be able to pull in a paying crowd. In any event, Einstein eventually signed his release, though he uh, already feared that the film was heading in a direction quite different from that first envisioned by Tompkins and his colleagues in the scientist movement. Three key figures in this redirection of the film were uh, Vannevar Bush, James B. Uh, Conant, or, yeah, Conant, um, the directors of all wartime military research, and General Leslie R. Groves, the head of the Man Pro Manhattan Project itself. Bush and Conant had been uh, skeptical of the film project from the first, fearing on the one hand that a Hollywood treatment would trivialize serious national issues, and on the other that a film inspired by members of the scientist movement might turn American public opinion against nuclear weapons as the public had turned against chemical weapons after World War I. Yeah, of course, it's going to fucking turn the fucking public away uh, you know, from nuclear weapons if it's called the beginning or the end and shows footage depicting burned bodies in the ruins of Hiroshima. A uh, rejection of the legitimacy of nuclear weapons would, they feared, effectively deprive the United States of the strongest part of its arsenal at a time when it faced increasing tensions with the Soviet Union. Bush and Conant used their negotiations over the signing of the releases to push for a more positive and, as they saw it, more historically accurate portrayal of the project and its leaders, and they had some success. 
General Groves was even more directly involved with the film, seeming to relish the prospect of being portrayed on the big screen. He worked closely with filmmakers and advised them on many aspects of the story. In fact, unbeknownst to the scientists involved, Groves persuaded MGM to hire him as a special consultant and pay him a princely sum at that time of $10,000 and give him final script approval. By the time director Norman Torog was ready to start shooting, far from the screenplay the writers had originally imagined, the revised screenplay depicted the atomic bomb project as a great and wonderful American success story. In Sam Marks's words, it was nothing less than the most magnificent triumph of modern times. The ultimate destruction of Hiroshima, now seen only from afar, not going to show the burned up bodies up close, right? Just from, from a distance through clouds of smoke, portrayed as simply a regrettable necessity. Perhaps not surprisingly, Groves, played by Brian Dunleavy, uh, with top billing, <laughs> came across as the dashing hero of the story. Uh, crazy that the guy with final script approval uh, came out as a hero. One scene in the movie proved particularly contentious. As originally shot, it showed Groves and Secretary of War Henry Stimson briefing Truman not long after he assumed the presidency. On being told of the existence of the Manhattan Project, he made what appeared to be a, a snap decision to approve dropping atomic bombs on Japan as soon as they were ready to go, declaring, I think more of our American boys than I do of all our enemies. Uh, This film uh, never did have a theatrical run in Japan. Uh, When MGM showed him a preview of the film, Truman was uneasy. He did not want moviegoers to get the impression he uh, made such a monumentous decision without considering all the ramifications. Not wanting to be accused of censorship, though, he raised no official objection. But people around him, led by columnist Walter Lippmann, loudly demanded that MGM make some changes. The decision to drop the bombs had been reached only after thorough consideration they claimed and the movie should reflect that. MGM relented, shot a new scene, now showing Truman at the Potsdam Conference in Germany, telling an aide in portentous terms about how carefully he weighed the decision. Deeply impressed, the aide said, you must have spent many sleepless nights over it. In fact, there's no evidence that any such thing happened. In later years, Truman always denied he lost sleep over the decision to drop the bombs. And the best evidence indicates he scarcely made a real decision at all. The Manhattan Project began with the promise that the bombs that they, uh, you know, are developing would be used in war. So it really wasn't up for a lot of debate uh, whether to use them or not once that was set in motion. Uh, but Lippmann was not really concerned with fidelity to the historical record. He was focused on a story that was calculated to reassure people of the world that America's leaders took atomic responsibilities seriously. MGM delivered just that in the reshot scene, which now claimed that Harry Truman had decided to approve dropping the bombs right after careful studies showing that the, their use would end the war at least a year earlier, save the lives of nearly half a million American soldiers, which again, you know, there's historical accuracy there. Uh, Moreover, the fictional Truman told his aide that the atomic bombs would be used only on prime military targets and only after leaflets had been dropped to warn Japanese civilians to evacuate. Uh, These statements, not entirely true. The bombs were, in fact, uh, dropped without any helpful warning, without a warning that would actually do anyone any fucking good. And they were dropped on cities full of civilians. The beginning or the end played fast and loose with a lot of historic truths. On the one hand, there were scientists that wanted to use it to warn the world about the dangers of nuclear power. But ultimately, the political machine won out and portrayed the atomic bomb as an American victory tale. And it also ended up being pretty cheesy. In one of the climactic scenes, the fictional character of Matt Cochran, played by Tom Drake, is assembling the bomb on the Tinian in the Pacific. When something slips, he reaches in to grab the part, manages to keep the bomb from exploding, but does absorb a lethal dose of radiation. When a friend comes to help him, Cochran ruefully says, maybe that's what I get for helping to build this thing. Cochran lingers long enough to ask his friend to deliver a final letter to his now pregnant wife. And in a schmaltzy ending, his ghost reads out the letter, extolling the wonders of atomic energy and implying that his sacrifice may be the means to bring a brighter day 
to all of humanity. It was classic Hollywood melodrama and virtually the opposite of what Tompkins had hoped for when he first wrote to Donna Reed. Leo Szilard summed up the bitter disappointment of many of his colleagues when he said that if our sin as scientists was to make and use the atomic bomb, our punishment was to watch the beginning or the end. <laughs> That's a fucking hilarious assessment. Uh, legitimately made me laugh out loud when I first read that. Perhaps we should have never invented such a weapon of mass destruction, but we were punished. Oh, dear Lord, were we ever punished? Have you seen this thing? Uh, audiences did not like it much either. Right up until its release, February of 1947, MGM executives thought the movie was going to be a huge hit. Sent out elaborate press kits explaining how the movie was made and producing a bizarre promotional trailer featuring an inquiring reporter talking about the importance of the film while people are streaming out of a preview. But after a very brief run in theaters, the beginning or the end virtually disappeared. Turned out audiences didn't like the preachy tone and the wooden performances. The, hey, nukes are fucking awesome propaganda piece did not work like anyone had hoped. Many other forms of media in the post-war years tried to introduce the public to nuclear power in a way that was not immediately associated with mass destruction, right? They decide maybe maybe uh, associating uh, nuclear power uh, with these fucking incredibly destructive bombs is not the way to make the American public feel comfortable with anything nuclear. Probably a, probably a good call to shift away, right? Uh, and shift towards power and away from these yeah, big-ass bombs. And let's talk about this shift right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around. Now let's dive back into hearing how America tried to uh, shift from thinking about destructive weapons to helpful power when it came to nuclear energy. In the first edition of Science Comics, January 1946, this comic presented wonders of science in pictures. Not sure how well this comic sold. Uh, I found a digital copy online. Uh, not nearly as cool as Superman or Batman. The first story was the bomb that won the war. The cover image features the distant city of Hiroshima, smothered by a fucking mushroom cloud, with a plane in the foreground. So, uh, okay, still talking about bombs, uh, but only as a transition. The start of the story reads, on August 5th, 1945, a single bomb from a single B-29 devastated the Japanese city of Hiroshima. And with its detonation, the world entered a new era the Atomic Age. Now trying to convey the scientific aspect of the development, science comics use white marbles to represent electrons and yellow marbles to represent the atom's nucleus in order to portray atom smashing, right, fission. This educational storytelling device was clearly aimed to impress the relevant science uh, upon the readers in a way that would be easy to comprehend and enjoy. Amidst the story of the bomb, several frames strategically intermingled with scenes of bomb development and explosions reflect on the potential for peaceful atomic energy, right? Here we go, we're starting the transition Comic concludes by offering reassurance that America is in total control of this new science and peaceful use can be made of this wartime technology. But like the beginning or the end, 
Some of the little vignette comics in this uh, and subsequent issues hinted at a less than optimistic tone, even if it was buried in sunny predictions about atomic energy. A strip published in Future World Comics presented the dangers of atomic power in the hands of mad scientists. The publication deals with a nuclear power plant under threat with the exclamation that disaster is imminent. If I don't get that switch closed, the whole plant may blow up. Fortunately, the hero of that story, Bill Cosmo, defeats the mad scientist and saves the day. Interestingly, that comic is, uh, uh, the comic presented not only nuclear weapons, but nuclear power and other power plants as potentially dangerous. So this is not good for future understanding. Also in 1947, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist adds the Doomsday Clock to the front cover. Uh, To reach midnight is to reach disaster. And the time is displayed as seven minutes to midnight. The Bulletin introduced the Doomsday Clock. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's it's still around. You can actually go check uh, it out, bulletin.org. It was changed in 2020 to 100 seconds to midnight. Then just this year, set to 90 seconds to midnight thanks to environmental concerns and the ongoing military conflict in Ukraine with Russia. So that's fun. And again, midnight is uh, the end of the world. A lot of fear-mongering. Was it legitimate or not back in 1947? In 1949, uh, the doomsday clock is set to just three minutes to midnight following the Soviet Union's first nuclear test on August 29th. The bomb they detonated was known in the West as Joe 1. And this marks a major turning point in how Americans are viewing atomic energy. Before the Soviets developed nuclear weapons, the U.S. often found triumph, delight, even some humor in the A-bomb. So funny when other people get blown to bits or die of radiation. Uh, The popularity and the cultural relevance of the atomic bomb made it a buzzword important in marketing all sorts of things, right? Including children's toys like uh, atomic board games, laboratory kits, fashion accessories, books, magazines, and comics. For adults, there was uh, even a comic cocktail in some bars. Atomic postcards were purchased to keep uh, as mementos. Some were also gifted to others. Many were preserved, even displayed in frames. On the back of an atomic explosion, Frenchman Flats or Yucca Flats, Nevada postcard, a personal message reads, I know that you will want to have this picture, uh, this picture framed. Nuclear power was experiencing a, a little boost in reputation. Many postcards were of towns such as Oak Ridge, Tennessee and White Rock, Los Alamos County, New Mexico, celebrated as being built and having thrived in response to nuclear development in these areas. Such postcards praised the jobs created, successful communities established, The nuclear power plant for energy production would also come to be linked to and lauded for creating jobs, settling families in a region, contributing to large community development. And who else is thinking of Homer Simpson right now? When I think of nuclear power plants, I do think of Homer Simpson working at one, which makes me actually associate nuclear energy with some fucking schmuck bound to make a lot of mistakes. Damn you, Simpsons writers. You're very effective anti-nuclear power plant propaganda. Yes, Smithers, it's working. It's working. On a mushroom cloud postcard by the Chamber of Commerce uh, Commerce in Farmington, New Mexico, a little packet of uranium ore is accompanied with the positive claims of the advantages available in Farmington. Work on drilling rigs, constant sunshine, oil, gas, uranium, uh, you know, mining. However, after the atomic bomb, Joe 1 is tested by the Soviet Union in August of 1949, America suddenly has to think about nuclear shelters and radiation sickness, all previously abstract, locally irrelevant. Author Tony Hilfer explains that the jubilant mood of the American population after World War II changes radically once Joe 1 is detonated, writing the atom was initially perceived as a scientific marvel, a form of white magic, until the Russians made one too. What is big deal? Now we all wrestle. Now we all nuclear. Now we kill everyone. Uh, Nuclear testing became a constant psychological stress for many Americans who feared both the tests and the inevitable war for which the tests seemed to be preparing. In other words, now we're in the Cold War. 
fear of nuclear apocalypse on a lot of American minds. You know, they're going to have to work harder with their PR campaign for power. Uh, 1950, playing on these Cold War fears, likely trying to get some extra views by using sensationalism. The Motorola Television Hour shows the film Atomic Attack. The story features a family at home during a nuclear crisis and a child becoming seriously ill from radiation contamination. At the same time, while this kid is likely dying, the government tries to downplay fears of radiation. (laughs) But then another 1950 short film, The Medical Aspects of Nuclear Radiation, lightens the fear of radiation by willfully misleading the public through unrealistic scenarios, focusing on pointing out the many types or focusing on pointing out that many types of radiation are safe. Uh, Who funded this film? The government? Uh, Yes, they actually did. In regards to nuclear bomb, the medical aspects of nuclear radiation flippantly suggests uh, that be somewhere else when it happens. That's a quote. You know, if a bomb is about to be dropped, just be somewhere else when it happens. (laughs) And if that is not possible, simply protect yourself against it. And then it doesn't say how to protect yourself against it. Just guys, 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 stop worrying about nuclear bombs. My God, so quick to panic. You have nothing to worry about. If you see a bomb being dropped, just go somewhere else. And if you can't do that, you know, protect yourself. Didn't anyone ever teach you how to protect yourself? The film notes that if contamination does occur, treatment's available and ultimately concludes that devoting 85% of one's worrying capacity to radiation is a fallacy and unsound. Guys, so what? You got a little bit nuked. Just go get some treatment. So your bones have been turned into soup from massive amounts of radiation. Get some treatment. Drink a bunch of milk or something. So maybe a blast wave melted your fucking face off, burned off all your hair. Have you heard of a wig? Put on a wig, wear a Halloween mask for the rest of your life. Problem solved. Uh, The medical aspects of nuclear radiation encourage audiences to be afraid of what they can see, blast damages and fires, but not what they can't see, radiation. Guys, if you can't see it, it cannot hurt you. That is science. Well, this fucked up way of thinking would recur in 1951 in the movie Survival Under Attack which showed footage of partially destroyed Japanese buildings alongside tranquil scenes of healthy and happy Japanese families. Oh, Jesus Christ. The clear inference is that Hiroshima civilians were relatively unaffected by the atomic bomb. The narrator actually says the majority of people exposed to radiation recovered completely, including a large percentage of those who suffered serious radiation sickness. Today, they lead normal lives. Guys, they're fucking fine over there. A lot of them, we found out, uh, liked having their skin melted off. Because now they have almost brand new skin. How cool is that? How, how lucky are they really? Uh, another government-made film in 1955 called Fallout would compare living in bunkers to a vacation. Advising adults to bring, uh, bring your favorite drinks, <laughs> a nice book, toys for the kids, some tin food. Uh, quote, some of the same things you might take on a vacation camping trip. Oh my gosh. Also, how fucking weird is it that people used to go to the movies and watch government-made films? Can we please never do that again? 1951, the United States begins nuclear testing in Nevada. The Nevada test site would soon become known as the most bombed place on Earth. Uh, The U.S. government carried out almost a thousand nuclear tests at this test site over the following four decades. Students and tourists traveled to these sites hoping to witness a mushroom cloud. Tourists both admired the technological power they saw displayed, also worried about it being wielded by the Soviets. Uh, By that year, the U.S. had conducted 24 nuclear tests. The Soviets had conducted four, including Joe One. But now that the Soviets have been conducting nuclear tests successfully, the U.S. government looked towards making an even bigger weapon, a super bomb, so to speak, a uh, thermonuclear device, a hydrogen bomb. J. Robert Oppenheimer, credited as the father of the atomic bomb, not the godfather like Enrico Fermi, uh, for his work on the Manhattan Project, 
noted that no scientist was prepared to endorse the further development of thermonuclear weaponry due to the limitless uh, capabilities of the weapon and its potential to be used for genocide and stated that a super bomb should never be produced. But then President Truman was like, shut the fuck up, nerd. I'll make the bomb decisions around these parts. And so, of course, they went ahead with it. Uh, While things are heating up on the weapon side now, things are also heating up on the nuclear energy side. The same year, the world's first peacetime use of nuclear power occurs when the U.S. government switches on experimental breeder reactor number one near the little less than a thousand person town of Arco, Idaho. Yeah, Idaho showing up here. Uh, December 20th, 1951. Four light bulbs are lit up. The first use of peacetime nuclear power in the U.S. You know, publicly. Arco came to be uh, in the mid-19th century as the town's site lay alongside a cutoff for the famous Oregon Trail. Grew to be an important regional hub for travelers over the decades. After the U.S. Postal Service rejected the original proposed name of Junction, it was eventually named after George von Arco, a prominent German radio scientist. Since the 1940s, the area around Arco has been home to extensive U.S. military training locations and government science facilities like the Idaho National Laboratory, just a 30-minute drive away. Man, my home state uh, doesn't often show up as a source of something uh, cool in these stories. Glad it is today. In 1952, at uh, Enowetok Atoll, way out in the middle of the South Pacific, part of the Marshall Islands, the first hydrogen bomb bomb is tested by the U.S. And this bomb was called Ivy Mike. Ivy Mike would be detonated in November of 1952, just a few days before Eisenhower won the presidency. The development of the hydrogen bomb was the result of an attempt to develop an even larger weapon than the Soviet Union's new thermonuclear bombs, and they did. The awesome 10 megaton blast had destroyed a small test island. Awesome (laughs) in in the means of like big, powerful, not like, ha fuck that island. Uh, And it created an underwater crater 1,500 yards in diameter. The blast produced an equivalent of 10.4 million tons of TNT, about 700 times more powerful than the bomb the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima. That fucking crazy, 700 times more powerful. Uh, With it, the U.S. and the world entered the thermonuclear age. December 12th, 1952, a severe nuclear accident occurs at the NRX reactor near Chalk River, Canada. The story of the Chalk River reactor began back during World War II at the University of Montreal. The university housed a secret laboratory or laboratory set up through an alliance between Canada, Britain, and the U.S. Several hundred researchers and technicians conducted nuclear research there. The Montreal laboratory had two goals, build reactors to supply electricity and produce plutonium to eventually make a bomb. This is also not good for nuclear power PR. It's just more strongly associating the connection between bombs and power. Uh, The lab carried out experiments and worked on the design of the NRX National Research Experimental Reactor and a plutonium extraction plant. The plan was to build the facilities in Chalk River, 180 kilometers or 111 miles north of Ottawa. One month after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Chalk River Laboratories opens and the public is told the labs will be doing peaceful nuclear research only, but that is not true. And again, Bad fucking association, right? And then people are now wondering, like, later, like, well, is this nuclear power plant part of a weapons program or is it just for power? Uh, Military objectives remained. Canada supplied the United States with uranium for military purposes for two decades after the war, along with 252 kilograms of plutonium between 1959 and 1964. The NRX became operational in 1947. With a 20 megawatt capacity, it was then the world's most powerful and best reactor for doing experiments, says James Ungren who worked for its accelerator physics branch. The site, known as the campus, was stunning. A natural, beautiful landscape. It was chosen specifically to convey a message of peace and tranquility. 
as it related to nuclear power while it secretly produced uranium, uh, weapons-grade uranium. Uh, a red brick building several stories high housed a nuclear reactor. The reactor vessel, called the Calandria, contained 175 long rods inserted vertically. Of these, 163 were filled with uranium fuel pellets and the remaining 12 with boron carbide, which can absorb neutrons and stop the fission chain reaction if it starts to overheat. In any, if any seven of these 12 control rods were lowered into the reactor, no fission could occur. Uh, could occur, excuse me. Conversely, control rods needed to be raised to start the reactor then, like restart it. Reactivity could also be controlled by adjusting the level of heavy water in the core. Heavy water resembles ordinary water in almost every way, but its hydrogen atoms are heavier isotopes. Its presence in the reactor slows down neutrons to make them more effective for fission. Draining the heavy water could halt the chain reaction. Finally, ordinary water circulated around the fuel rods to keep everything at an acceptable temperature. In the plant's control room, there were four important push buttons. Button one raised a bank of four control rods out of the reactor. Button two raised the remaining eight, remaining eight control rods. Button three increased the current and the electromagnets to hold the rods in place. And button four drove the 12 rods into the reactor using a compressed air system. If the system failed, gravity could draw the rods down. It would be a big mix-up involving these buttons that would trigger Chalk River's doom. On Friday, December 12, 1952, at around 3 p.m., the last experiment of the day was about to begin. For the test, the reactor's cooling system was modified and its water flow reduced. Adjustments not seen as worrisome because only very low power would be needed. An operator was down in the basement doing a routine check and he was a fucking idiot. Maybe, or maybe he just had a bad day. He mistakenly thought the valves for the compressed air system were in the wrong position. He corrected them, but not really, causing four control rods to rise out of the core. Red lights came on in the control room. A supervisor hurried downstairs, was shocked to discover the error. What the fuck, Ricky? Uh, he quickly tried to uh, lower the rods using gravity. Uh, unfortunately, only one rod went all the way back into the reactor while the others dropped down just far enough for the red lights to go out. Maybe that guy down there was Derek Skeet Skeet Mullet. Who knows? Oh, fucking Skeet Skeet! God damn it! Uh, to get all the rods back into the reactor, the supervisor phoned his assistant and told him to press buttons one and four. And then his assistant put down the phone to carry out the instructions, but didn't hear his boss shout out that he meant to say buttons three and four. Not fucking big whoops. So I just picture like, just Benny Hill music. Four additional control rods rise out of the reactor for a total of seven rods out of the 12. Power in the reactor now doubling every two seconds. The red lights come back on. The assistant tries lowering the bank of four rods, but only one drops back into the reactor. And even that took 90 seconds. Everything's going wrong. In the control room, panic sets in. Uh, there wouldn't have been a problem if the cooling system hadn't been out altered for a test that day. Instead of circulating to carry out heat from the reactor, the water began to boil. The instrument measuring the temperature could no longer keep up with the surge. The rods of uranium now start to melt, contaminating the cooling water. Designed to handle up to 30 megawatts of power, the reactor ro- rises to between 60 and 100 megawatts. Employees start dumping the heavy water into a tank and successfully stop the fission. Full loss control lasted only 62 seconds, but the trouble wasn't over. The supervisor down in the basement heard the sound of air-activated pistons followed by a dull thud. The noise was, in fact, an explosion that resulted when hydrogen forming in the reactor from the melting uranium came into contact with air entering the reactor. And the cooling water now pours out of the damaged device. The accident is over, but now radiation is spreading. In all, 4.5 million liters of water uh, end up pooling in the basement. So they got a big-ass basement. Uh, The water was seven times more radioactive than the total world production of radium at the time. So it was, as scientists would say, fucking super duper ouchy radioactive. Uh, The air was also contaminated. Alarms are going off in the building and the surrounding area, urging everyone to evacuate. 
The accident was one of the world's first meltdowns of a reactor core. Uh, There's actually an international scale for measuring nuclear meltdowns similar to earthquakes. And the scale goes from one to seven. Chernobyl was a seven. Chalk River was a five. Three Mile Island will also be a five. It'll take 14 months to clean up this site and put the reactor back in service. A pipeline is built to drain the water into a sandy area to filter it before it reaches the river. Don't want too much radiation in the river. Don't want want to have, it's okay for the fish to have three eyes, but not four. Uh, The reactor core also buried in a sandy spot. To avoid overexposure radiation, men apparently took turns driving the truck to carry the core, which was so contaminated that a person three feet away could absorb a lethal dose in less than an hour. About 800 AECL employees, along with Canadian and U.S. military personnel, assist in the cleanup. And no one is actually reported as having died or been seriously injured due to this accident. Crazily, in 2005, specialists examined the site where the melted fuel rods had been buried in wooden boxes and found that the boxes had degraded over time and the rods were in direct contact with the soil. But again, no one in the area is is harmed. Also, 32 pieces of rod were recovered, more than the 19 pieces listed in the records. What the hell there? Uh, They were all moved to a more suitable storage area in 2007. Okay, moving ahead to 1953 now. The Doomsday Clock set at two minutes to midnight to reflect thermonuclear development. August 12th, 1953, the Soviet Union tests its first fusion-based device on a tower in central Siberia. The bomb has a yield of 400 kilotons. Although not nearly as powerful as the American bomb tested nine months earlier, it has a key advantage. It's actually a usable weapon, small enough to be dropped from a, a plane. Ivy Mike was uh, detonated you know, on the ground. Now U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower wants to officially steer the nuclear conversation away from destruction and death and towards a bright future once and for all. And he launches his famous Atoms for Peace program. December 8th, 1953, Eisenhower will deliver his famous Atoms for Peace speech at the UN General Assembly. Although not as well known as his warning about the military-industrial complex, which is a fucking awesome speech, uh, voiced later in his farewell radio and television address to the American people, President Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace speech embodied his most important nuclear initiative as president. He wanted to change public opinion, as well as the technological sector, away from the idea of nuclear power as this harbinger of death and towards a view of its benefit or yeah, towards a view of it as a benefit for mankind. Though he felt a moral imperative to warn the American people that the Soviet Union was developing thermonuclear bombs, the first of which they had tested in 1949, he also wanted to instill optimism for the future, something which was in short supply during the height of the Cold War. He would say, I feel impelled to speak today in a language that in a sense is a new one, which I, who has spent so much of my life in the military profession, would have preferred never to use. That new language is the language of atomic warfare. The atomic age has moved forward that every citizen of the world should have some comprehension, at least in comparative terms, of the extent of this development of the utmost significance to all of us. Clearly, if the peoples of the world are to conduct an intelligent search for peace, they must be armed with the significant facts of today's existence. Eisenhower said that even though Soviets were developing their own bombs, the American program for warning and defense systems would be expanded and enhanced to protect us from any possible attack. He also said that the great quantity of the United States nuclear weapons was a deterrent in and of itself from an attack. Our ability to retaliate was too great, right? That whole mutually assured destruction. And though it was an eventuality that most nations, not just the United States, Canada, Britain, and the USSR would be able to develop nuclear weapons, he stressed that the U.S.'s involvement in nuclear power would be constructive, not destructive, saying, My country's purpose is to help move us out of this dark chamber of horrors into the light, to find a way by which the minds of men, the hopes of men, the souls of men everywhere can move forward toward peace and happiness 
and well-being. This era of peace possibly brought to you by nuclear power. He would say, the United States knows that peaceful power from atomic energy is no dream of the future. That capability already proved is here, now, today. Who can doubt if the entire body of the world's scientists and engineers had adequate amounts of fissionable material with which to test and develop their ideas, that this capability would rapidly be transformed into universal, efficient, and economic usage. And there is an argument to be made for nuclear weapons uh, uh, bringing a tremendous amount of peace into the world, right? Uh, As I just mentioned briefly a second ago, the MAD doctrine, Mutual Assured Destruction, a doctrine of military strategy and national security policy, which posits that a full-scale use of nuclear weapons by an attacker on a nuclear-armed defender with second-strike capabilities would cause the complete annihilation of both the attacker and the defender. Matt is based on the theory of rational deterrence, which holds that the threat of using strong weapons against the enemy prevents the enemy's use of the same weapons. And I get it, right? Without nuclear weapons, would there have already been a World War III? I think very possibly there would, right? Conflicts around the world have not escalated to the point they might have had the threat of nuclear apocalypse not existed. What would Russia be doing to Ukraine right now and perhaps to Poland and other nations in Eastern Europe without Matt? without knowing that pushing shit a bit farther could truly bring about the obliteration of Moscow and more. Despite the peaceful promises made in the name of nuclear energy, culturally, not everybody is ready to think about nuclear power only in terms of peace. Uh, this will be represented in a lot of movies in the mid, you know 1950s. Many early Hollywood depictions of the nuclear theme either befriended the nuclear bomb or used satire and fantasy to diffuse concerns like the, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, 1953, uh, in which a dinosaur survived through atomic testing. Even though ridiculous, many of these movies worked uh, in messages of fear and concern that resonated deeply with the audience. Take the movie Them, which was released in 1954. Though its premise was outlandish, featuring atomic testing, turning ants into giant killing machines, there were lines that undoubtedly rang true, like, when man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. Doom. Doom! In films like The Incredible Shrinking Man, Attack of the Crab Monsters, and Them, radiation has the power to change humans and the natural world into something fundamentally alien, unnatural, and inhuman. Man, 1957's Attack of the Crab Monsters had not heard of that gem. I found the original trailer on YouTube. I love these old trailers. It was just as good as I'd hoped. I want you to hear this, and I'll be reading the on-screen little like you know narration uh, in the beginning and the end. So all the words I'll be saying here is, is their words. Shut your eyes. Cover your ears. Little crap shows up now. On a nightmare island, the most terrifying horror ever loosed on a shuddering earth. Attack of the crab monsters. These monsters are about 50 times as big as the human. Pacific Island, the Navy lands a party of daring scientists to solve the mysterious disappearance of an entire atomic research team. Strange horror strikes first at the plane that brought them. And then, earth-shattering tremors begin tearing the island to shreds. Okay, Professor, how are the crabs blowing up the island? (laughs) I am not sure. But imagine they are able to send out arcs of heat. They are packed with it. They can melt and fuse parts of the caverns, explode the materials contained, and bring about the slides. There used to be ridges there for maybe two miles. Nowadays, less than half a city block. Soon we will have nowhere to run. 
Fucking crabs. Another swimming. deep among the terrors of the mighty Pacific. Daring skin divers brave undersea perils that stagger the imagination. Jesus, look at the crabs. With razor sharp claws that hand grenades and dynamite cannot stop. Nor searing fire and flame. Nor tons of crushing rocks. As mankind faces its last desperate chance. A tidal wave of terror from under the sea. Attack of the crab monsters. An allied artist picture. Uh, you can watch that entire thing for free on YouTube if you want. It's only an hour long movie. And it doesn't take those uh, giant crabs long to threaten humanity's extinction, apparently. Uh, backing up a bit, the government is going full steam ahead with Atoms for Peace. On August 30th, Congress passes the Atomic Energy Act in 1944. The act, which modified a similar act from 1945, covers uh, the development, uh, regulation, and disposal of nuclear materials and facilities in the U.S. Notably, it made it possible for the government to allow private companies to gain technical information restricted data about nuclear energy production and the production of fissile materials, allowing for greater exchange of information with foreign nations. It would declare that atomic energy is capable of application for peaceful as well as military purposes. It is therefore declared to be the policy of the United States that a, the development use and control of atomic energy shall be directed so as to make the maximum contribution to the general welfare subject at all times to the paramount objective of making the maximum contribution to the common defense and security, and B, the development, use, and control of atomic energy shall be directed so as to promote world peace, improve the general welfare, increase the standard of living, and strengthen free competition in private enterprise. Uh, That same year, uh, the Soviet Union's Obninsk nuclear power plant generates electricity and it's connected to the external power grid. So they're also exploring peacetime use of uh, nuclear energy. The following year, 1955, the small settlement of Arco, Idaho, fuck yeah, bro, uh, becomes the first American town to be powered by nuclear energy. Uh, Why are they picking Idaho to be the guinea pig for nuclear power? It's almost like in some people's eyes, we were the least valuable state in the nation. Like, well, you know, if it goes wrong, it's just fucking Idaho. Uh, The Borax 3 reactor is turned on July 17th. When the reactor powers up, conventional power created by the Utah Power and Light Company is slowly replaced by nuclear power. The test only lasts about an hour until Arco's electricity is fed from the Utah Power and Light Company again. And while it only lasted an hour, it proved nuclear power towns were a real possibility, paving the way for our current nuclear energy technology. November 2nd, 1955, the Soviet Union explodes its first true hydrogen bomb at the Sema, it's a, it's a big one, Semipalatinsk test site, Russia's equivalent of our Nevada test site, a place maybe bombed more than Nevada. This bomb has a yield of 1.6 megatons, no Ivy Mike, Russia. No Ivy Mike, but terrifying. Also in 1955, the first nuclear accident in American history involves the experimental breeder reactor, that first reactor in Arco that was fired up in 1951 and again in 1955. On November 29th, 1955, the reactor uh, at EBR1 suffers a partial meltdown during a coolant flow test. The flow test was trying to determine the cause of unexpected reactor responses to changes in coolant flow. It was subsequently repaired for further experiments which determined that thermal expansion of the fuel rods and the thick plates supporting the fuel rods was the cause of the unexpected reactor response. No one is hurt. No one dies. 1956, the first full-scale nuclear power plant is opened at Calder Hall in the UK. Queen Elizabeth II, who opened the plant, stated, this new power, which has proved itself to be such a terrifying weapon of destruction, is harnessed for the first time for the common good 
of our community. When the station was switched on, nearby Workington became the first town in the world to receive heat, light, and power from atomic energy. Hailed as the dawn of the atomic age, it produced electricity for 47 years. Finally stopped generating power back in 2003. Its Magnox design was the template for Britain's first generation of nuclear power stations, and that technology was then exported around the world. 1957 sees the publication of the Brookhaven Report, also known as WASH 740, Theoretical Possibilities and Consequences of Major Accidents in Large Nuclear Power Plants. The Brookhaven Report, much better of the two titles, was published by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, USAEC. The stat-based report estimated the possible effects of a maximum credible reactor accident. It was estimated that such an accident could cause up to 3,400 deaths, 43,000 injuries, and property damage of $7 billion U.S. dollars. And that is terrible. But again, it is, it is not as bad as many people seem to believe when it came to a full meltdown, not dystopian, not leading to millions of deaths, and a land populated only by fucking deformed mutants, giant crabs who can blow up caves with their fucking mind heat or some shit. You know, a bunch of weirdos living on lizard meat and cactus milk in some horribly dystopian environment. Also, the assumptions underlying the Brookhaven report results uh, were unrealistic, including the worst meteorological, the worst meteorological conditions, no containment building, and that half the reactive core, half the reactor core is released into the atmosphere as micrometer-sized pellets, without any examination of how that might occur. Um, at the time, this virtually impossible, actually beyond worst-case scenario conclusion of the Brookhaven report uh, does not look great to the public. The same year. Continuing the back and forth, is nuclear power good or bad for us? Uh, a movie will come out convincing the public that nuclear power is A-OK. Walt Disney's documentary, Our Friend the Atom. Uh, Walt Disney, no surprises here, was extremely influential at the time as both a source of education and entertainment. Disney had managed to penetrate popular culture with over 18 films, 145 shorts, and 20 documentaries. So who better to convince the public on behalf of the government? Our Friend the Atom was a small educational segment of a Disney documentary series discussing nuclear technology. This documentary series operated through the Disney amusement park worlds of Frontierland, Futureland, Adventureland, Fantasyland. Uh, Futureland was marketed as the realm of the atom and the promise of things to come. And I want to say something about Roy Disney here. Not sure how he ties into all of this. I feel like the government would go to Walt to dissuade public fear over nuclear power and then... If a bunch of people did die due to some kind of massive nuclear accident, well, then Roy would be called, right? He'd be called to make sure it was all swept under the rug. That sounds like Roy Disney, that evil fuck. And yes, that is a joke reference to an episode from a long time ago. If you're very confused right now. Uh, outside of the realm of popular culture, governments kept pursuing nuclear technology. The UK starts nuclear testing in the Pacific Ocean at Christmas Island. That same year, the International Atomic Energy Agency is formed, uh, established. And now the U.S. government puts even more work into firing up some nuclear power plants. September 2nd, 1957, Congress passes the Price-Anderson Act. The act aims to cover liability claims of members of the public for personal injury and property damage caused by a nuclear accident involving a commercial nuclear power plant. Any claims above the $12.6 billion amount would be covered by a congressional mandate to retroactively increase nuclear utility liability or would be covered by the federal government. And the hope is that by limiting utility financial liability following a nuclear accident, more plans will be constructed. There'll be more corporate interest, if you will. Uh, within a month of this, another meltdown will occur, just not in the U.S. In the late afternoon of September 29th, 1957, excuse me, residents of the Chelyabrinsk district of the southern Urals of Russia noticed unusual bluish-violet colors in the sky. 
The regional press speculated uh, about polar lights appearing exceptionally far south. However, within a few days, a slew of government activity became evident around the military area that housed the nuclear facility, Mayak. And then peasants were required to slaughter their livestock, bury their crops, and quickly plow their farmland. Uh-oh. More than 20 villages, comprising over 11,000 people, were evacuated and completely demolished. No official statement was given about any of this shit because fucking Russia. But everybody could figure out for themselves that a major accident had happened at Mayak. Mayak had been established in 1946, and by 1949, it produced the first Soviet nuclear bomb. After this initial success, Moscow demanded more bombs and allowed less time to make them because fucking Russia. Mayak delivered under the threat of exile to the gulags, I'm sure, for its scientists. And that rushing led to a lot of fucking up. As a result of continually disregarding basic safety standards, 17,245 workers received radiation overdoses. My God. Between 1948 and 1958. A dumping of radioactive waste into the nearby river. Awesome. From 1949 to 1952 caused several breakouts of radiation sickness in villages downstream. God knows how many people died because of all this irresponsibility. It's not like Russia is ever going to tell the truth. Uh, disasters here may have legitimately killed thousands and thousands of people. But what happened on September 29th, 1957? Well, the cooling system of a cistern containing radioactive waste had failed and nobody noticed. The waste started to heat up, eventually exploding at a temperature of 350 degrees Celsius or 662 degrees Fahrenheit. So pretty hot. The 160 ton concrete cover burst, flinging 20 million curies of radioactive material into the sky. We were scattered with the wind, settled over an area of 20,000 square kilometers, over 12,400 square miles, home to roughly 270,000 people. It was impossible to keep information about the disaster from leaking out, at least in the surrounding area. The Western world, though, would not hear about it until 1976, when Soviet immigrant Zorez Medvedev first revealed some facts about the catastrophe. So bad timing for the Three Mile Island incident that would occur a few years after he revealed these facts. Uh, the CIA had known about it long before. By 1960, its network of informants and aerial spy photos had provided it with a clear picture of what happened. Those documents were later published, but long kept away from the public so as not to put the image of an emerging nuclear industry at risk or cause people to ask questions about safety issues at the U.S. government's own Hanford nuclear site or other places. Indeed, government laboratories even put out statements downplaying Medvedev's, uh, Medvedev's accounts of the seriousness of what was called the Kishtim incident. Moscow, of course, was delighted by that. The Kishtim incident uh, illustrates some of the occasional absurdity of the Cold War. CIA actually helped the Soviet Union keep its uh, first nuclear catastrophe a secret, not releasing some details until 1989. Under a month later, another radioactive cloud blooms in the sky, this time in England. The Windscale Fire of October 10th, 1957 was the worst nuclear accident in the UK's history, and one of the worst in the world, ranked in severity at level five out of a possible seven on that international nuclear event scale. The fire was in Unit 1 of the two-pile windscale site on the northwest coast of England in Cumberland. The two graphite-moderated reactors referred to at the time as piles have been built as part of the British post-war atomic bomb project. Windscale pile number one was operational in October of 1950, followed by pile number two in June of 1951. And during construction, physicist Terence Price considered the possibility of a fuel cartridge splitting open if, for example, a new cartridge was inserted too forcefully causing the one at the back of the channel to fall past the relatively narrow water channel and break on the floor behind it. The hot uranium could then catch fire, and the fine uranium oxide dust would be blown up the chimney and escape. Raising the issue at a meeting, he suggested filters be added to the chimneys, but his concerns were dismissed as too difficult to deal with and not recorded even in the minutes. But Sir John Cockroft, 
fucking great name. Mr. Cockcroft. Uh, leading the project team was sufficiently alarmed to order the filters. Thank God he did. God, good on Cockcroft. These filters would end up trapping about 95% of the radioactive dust and arguably saved a large portion of Northern England from becoming a nuclear uninhabitable wasteland. So how did the fire start? On October 7th, scientists noticed that the reactor was heated up more than normal. Uh, they assumed it was due to something called Wigner release, and that was business as usual. Early in the morning of October 10th, however, it was suspected that something unusual was going on. The temperature in the core was supposed to gradually fall as Wigner energy release ended, but the monitoring equipment showed something more ambiguous. And one thermocouple indicated the core temperature was instead rising. As that process continued, the temperature continued to rise and eventually reached 400 degrees Celsius, just over 750 degrees Fahrenheit. In an effort to cool the pile, the cooling fans were sped up and airflow was increased. Radiation detectors in the chimney then indicated a release and it was assumed that a cartridge had burst. This was not a fatal problem and had happened in the past. However, unknown to the operators, the cartridge had not just burst, but actually caught fire. Speeding up the fans increased the airflow in the channel, fanning those flames. The fire now spread to surrounding fuel channels and soon the radioactivity in the chimney was rapidly increasing. A foreman arriving for work noticed smoke coming out of the chimney. The core temperature continued to rise. The operators began to suspect the core was on fire. Operator tried to examine the pile with a remote scanner, but it jammed. Tom Hughes, second in command to uh, the reactor manager, suggested examining the reactor personally. And so he and another operator, both clad in protective gear, went to uh, the uh, charge face of the reactor. An inspection plug was taken out, said Tom Hughes in a later interview. And we saw, to our complete horror, four channels of fuel glowing bright cherry red. There was now no doubt that the reactor was on fire and had been for almost 48 hours. Reactor manager Tom Tui donned full protective equipment and breathing apparatus, scaled the 80-foot ladder to the top of the reactor building where he stood atop the reactor lid to examine the rear of the reactor, the discharge face. By doing so, he was risking his life by exposing himself to a preposterous amount of radiation. Uh, He reported a dull red luminescence visible, lighting up the void between the back of the reactor and the rear containment. On the morning of Friday, October 11th, when the fire was at its worst, 11 tons of uranium were ablaze. (laughs) That sounds... Real bad, it was. Uh, temperatures were becoming extreme. One thermal couple registered 1,300 degrees Celsius now, almost 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit. And the biological shield around the stricken reactor was now in severe danger of collapse. Faced with this crisis, Tui suggests using water. This is risky, as molten metal oxidizes in contact with water, stripping oxygen from the water molecules and leaving free hydrogen, which could mix with incoming air and explode, tearing open the weakened containment. Faced with a lack of other options, the operators decide to go ahead with the plan, though. But the water was unsuccessful in extinguishing the fire, requiring further measures to be taken. Tui now orders everyone out of the reactor building except himself. This guy's a fucking hero. Uh, Just himself and the fire chief remain in order to shut off all cooling and ventilating air entering the reactor. By this time, an evacuation of the local area is being considered, and Tui's action is the worker's last gamble. Tui climbs up several times, reports watching the flames leaping from the discharge face, slowly dying away. During one of his inspections, he finds that the inspection plates, which are removed with a metal hook to facilitate viewing of the discharge face at the core, are stuck. Uh, This, he reports, is due to the fire trying to suck air in from wherever it could. Still, he manages to pull the inspection plate away, is greeted with the sight of the fire dying away. Water was kept flowing through the pile for a further 24 hours until it was completely cold. After the water hoses were turned off, the now contaminated water spilled out onto the forecourt, the reactor tank itself uh, remains sealed since the accident and still contains about 15 tons of uranium fuel, and uh, it will not be decommissioned until 2037. So how much radiation got out? Well, the fire released an estimated 740 terabecquerels, 
of iodine-131, as well as 22 terabecquerels of uh, casium-137, cesium, excuse me, and 12,000 terabecquerels of xenon-133, among other radionuclides. In the days following the disaster, tests were carried out on local milk samples, and the milk was found to be dangerously contaminated with iodine-131. Milk from 500 square kilometers of nearby countryside over 300 square miles is destroyed for about a month, but nobody is evacuated from the surrounding area. The UK government under Harold Macmillan orders original reports into the fire to be heavily censored. Information about the incident to be kept largely secret. This doesn't bode well when people find out later for trust in nuclear uh, power. Macmillan fears that the news of the incident will shake public confidence in nuclear power and damage British-American nuclear relations. Uh, But it later came to light that the small but significant amounts of the highly dangerous radioactive isotope uh, polonium-210 were released during the fire. That release was not factored into government reports until 1983 when it was estimated that the fallout had caused at least 33 cancer fatalities in the long term. An updated 1988 UK government report, the most recent government estimate, estimates that roughly 100 fatalities probably resulted from cancer as a result of the release over 40 to 50 years. The government report also estimated that 90 non-fatal cancers were caused by the incident, as well as 10 hereditary defects. But reactor manager Tom Tui, the hero most exposed to the initial wave of radiation, well, he would live very healthy until the age of 90. Uh, Three Mile Island would release 25 times more xenon-135 than wind scale, but much less iodine, cesium, and stratonium, or, or strontium. Sorry, I'm not a fucking scientist. Uh, just a month later, uh, Shippingport, Pennsylvania becomes the first large-scale nuclear power plant to produce commercial power, purely for peaceful purposes. Uh, way back on Labor Day 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower used what he called a neutron rod to remotely start its construction. The president used this rod again to start the reactor on opening day, December 8th, 18th, excuse me, 1957, positioning the entire development of Shippingport as a magical and miraculous process. A movie titled It's Electric! would promote shipping port to the American people. The title of this short film repositions the atom not as a nuclear radiation-filled danger, but as electricity itself. As a concept, electricity is familiar and safe to the American people, so describing shipping port primarily as electric rather than nuclear, you know, went a long ways to ease tensions. The first power at shipping port was fed into the grid for the Pittsburgh area. Now back to the NRX and Chalk River in Canada for a second. A more powerful reactor than the NRX called NRU National Research Universal is constructed in a building next to NRX and begins operation in 1957 with capacity of 200 megawatts. On May 24, 1958, the reactor is shut down so damaged fuel rods can be extracted using a crane and water-cooled fuel flasks and then placed in a storage pool. Uh, When workers removed the second rod, they noted that its fuel flask no longer contained any water. The crane operator tried reinserting the rod into the reactor, but it got jammed, wouldn't go all the way in. Crew members in rubber suits and respirators sprayed it with water with little success. The crane tried to pull the rod back out, but the rod snapped and now caught fire. While the crane was moving part of the rod toward the pool, a piece of uranium 90 centimeters long came loose and fell into the repair pit. The radioactivity from the burning active uranium was carried by the fumes in the form of dust, contaminating the whole reactor room and parts of the NRU building. Since the activity was very high, personnel were evacuated. No one could remain in the area for more than a brief period, two minutes, wrote David A. Keyes, the general manager at the time of the Chalk River facility. Employees, including an accountant, took turns pouring buckets of sand into the burning metal from a catwalk. And within 15 minutes, they did put the fire out. One employee, George Keeley, normally worked in the metallurgy building, but agreed to help with the cleanup. The supervisors explained his mission to him, enter the pitch dark plant, find a large vacuum hose, use it to suck up fluorescent pellets on the floor for 10 minutes. 
Keeley would recall it was one thing when they explained it, but another to do it. I went in and found the vacuum hose, which was about eight feet long. It had an elbow on the end, which kept sliding sideways because they put it on with duct tape. By the time, I don't feel like you should be using duct tape at a fucking nuclear power plant. Uh, by the time I figured out what I was doing, I had to get out. I must have vacuumed an area of only about 10 square feet. Once again, over 800 employees as well as 300 military personnel take part in the cleanup operation. The 1958 accident, less serious than the previous one, never classified, but would potentially be a level four or five. The reactor was shut down for about six months. Uh, and this reactor would go on to have a long career, becoming a major source of medical isotopes for the entire planet for decades, not ceasing operations until 2018. Back in 1961, now tragedy strikes again. Just before Christmas, uh, 1960, three workers died following an accidental and partial meltdown at the SO1 reactor at the Idaho National Laboratory Facility just outside of Idaho Falls. On December 21st, 1960, the reactor was shut down for scheduled maintenance and the primary crew of operators left for the holidays. In the meantime, a maintenance crew of three operators takes over the facility. And on January 3rd, 1961 at 9.01 p.m., as the reactor is being prepared to come back online, procedures required that the central control rod be manually withdrawn by a matter of inches. Specifically, the safe limit of extension was to be 4.2 inches. However, the rod was instead extended way too far, approximately 20 inches. Consequently, only four milliseconds later, enough heat was generated in the surrounding water to cause it to vaporize. And that released an extremely concentrated amount of steam up from the reactor, causing the entire housing, just this little fuck up, too many inches, um, causes this uh, entire housing weighing 26,000 pounds to jump nine feet vertically and four control rods and, and four control rods and other various pieces of the assembly to be propelled upwards with enough force to become lodged into the ceiling. The blast immediately knocks Army Specialist John A. Burns, 27, Richard Leroy McKinley, 22, to the floor killing Burns, the reactor operator, and severely injuring McKinley, a trainee. The third man, Navy CB construction electrician first class, Richard C. Legg, uh, 26, and the ship super- shift supervisor, who had been standing atop the vessel, was himself impaled and pinned to the fucking ceiling. Rest in peace, Dick. Man, not happy to hear he died, but also, how does every fucking episode have a dude named Richard in it? The Matrix. Mess with me. Anyway, while nearby crews were alerted to the emergency through an alarm system, uh, and bravely exposed themselves to dangerous levels of radiation in an effort to help the operators. All three eventually passed with McKinley found alive, but later succumbing to his injuries. The event is still the only reactor accident in U.S. history that resulted in immediate fatalities. The events of that night sparked several long-lasting consequences. Cleanup of the event exposed hundreds of people to dangerous levels of radiation despite the remote location. In doing so, it took what was hailed as a revolutionary technology that was to provide a seemingly unlimited stable power source at little cost and turned it into an issue of more public concern and skepticism. So is this area now teeming with radioactivity? Uh, the government says it's not. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention teamed up with the Idaho National Laboratory to study this issue, and their 1991 report found next to no measurable impact. Even those uh, who live closer to the facility or got the highest potential dose of released radiation. Even the most extreme cases in the worst periods of radiation releases only resulted in the approximate amount of radiation from three chest x-rays over a year's time. Further study and analysis in 2004 confirmed that any radiation in the ARCO area was low level. And in the report's words, not sufficient to cause human health concerns. Scary word, but the amounts have to be uh, high enough for it to actually be scary. Uh, Radiation, that is. On October 30th, 1961, Soviet Russia now tests its biggest bomb to date. It would be called Tsar Bomba, 
With a yield of 50 megatons of TNT, Zarbama was the culmination of a number of hydrogen bomb tests conducted throughout this time by both the Soviet Union and the U.S. A team of physicists led by Yuli Karatan designed it, choosing to make it a three-stage hydrogen bomb. Uh, that kind of bomb uses a, a fission-type atomic bomb as the first stage to compress the thermonuclear second stage. The energy produced from this explosion is then directed to compress the much larger thermonuclear third stage. And on October 30th, a 295V Soviet long-range bomber delivered Tsar Bomba during the test. The bomber was accompanied by an observer plane that was responsible for collecting air samples and filming the test. A reflective white paint was used on the planes to minimize thermal damage to their surfaces. Tsar Bomba weighed 27 metric tons, just under 60,000 pounds. That's so fucking massive. 26 feet in length, uh, 6.9 feet in diameter. The bomb bay doors and fuselage uh, fuel tanks had to be removed from the 295V due to its large size. Tsar Bomba was attached to a parachute weighing nearly 1,800 pounds, which provided the bomber and observer planes additional time to fly approximately 30 miles away from ground zero prior to detonation. Despite the addition of reflective paint and the parachute, a 50-50 chance of survival was predicted for those on board. But they would drop it anyway because fucking Russia. Drop it off or go to the gulags. Uh, the bomb was detonated in the atmosphere at 11.32 Moscow time over the Mityushika Bay nuclear testing range in the northern Arctic Circle. Or Arctic Circle. Uh, the bomb was set by barometric sensors to detonate at 13,000 feet and was dropped from a height of 34,000 feet. The Tsar bomb yield was approximately 1,570 times more powerful than the yield of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined and 10 times more powerful than all of the weapons exploded during World War II outside of those albums. Uh, it caused massive destruction. All of the wooden and brick buildings in nearby Severny, located 34 miles from the aiming point or ground zero, were fucking obliterated in seconds. In other Soviet districts, located over 100 miles from ground zero, wooden houses were demolished, brick and stone houses suffered major damage, radio communication outages common, uh, one test witness felt the thermal effects at a distance of 170 miles away. That is so crazy. The intense heat from the detonation was capable of causing third degree burns at a distance of 62 miles away from ground zero. That is fucking absurd. I mean, imagine that. a bomb gets dropped over 60 miles from you and still melts your fucking skin off. The shock wave was felt as far away as 430 miles Windows shattered 560 miles away. Some windows even shattered as far away as fucking Norway due to atmospheric focusing of the shockwave. That is so much power. Uh, the Tsar bomb is still to this day the most powerful thermonuclear weapon ever detonated. Despite being uh, an airburst detonated 13,000 feet above the ground, Tsar bomb's seismic magnitude on the ground estimated at 5.25. <laughs> Uh, it's like a big earthquake. Uh, seismic sensors continue to register shockwaves even after a third revolution around the earth. Like the wave just wrapped around the earth three times. Uh, but what about the people that dropped it? Were they reduced to ash? Well, at the point of detonation, the aircraft dropped approximately one half mile in altitude due to the shockwave, but would make it to safety. Uh, the Tsar Bomba mushroom cloud was approximately 40 miles high, seven times higher than Mount Everest. Uh, the cloud reached another, uh, higher than the stratosphere. The top of the cloud had a width of 59 miles and a base, and at the base, a width of 25 miles. For Americans, it was easy to imagine this bomb obliterating an entire major city, all of its suburbs, maybe a couple nearby cities. All right, Chicago, D.C., New York, just fucking gone completely in an instant. 
I mean, hard to fathom, but a real possibility. While nobody was killed in this test, supposedly, uh, which was held in one of the most remote regions of the Soviet Union, excuse me, if Tsar Obama would have fallen, say, on Washington, D.C., it would have killed an estimated 2.2 million people in the fucking initial blast and heat waves alone and spread dangerous levels of radioactivity as far away as Pennsylvania. Now let's fast forward to October of 1962. For 13 days that month, the world waited, seemingly on the brink of nuclear war, and hoped for a peaceful resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. On October 14, 1962, an American U-2 spy plane piloted by Major Richard Heiser, of course another dick shows up, and he secretly photographed nuclear missile sites being built by the Soviet Union on the island of Cuba, whose leader, Fidel Castro, uh, was aligned with the Soviet Union after taking power in 1959. And Cuba, just barely 100 miles from the coast of Florida, not fun to imagine the Russians having bombs like the one I just described, just a bit off our coastline. Soviet leader uh, Nikita Khrushchev had gambled on sending the missile to Cuba with the specific goal of increasing his nation's nuclear strike capability against America. The Soviets had long felt uneasy about the number of nuclear weapons that were targeted at them from sites in Europe and Turkey, and they saw the deployment of missiles in Cuba as a way to level the playing field. And that does make sense. Another key factor in the Soviet missile scheme was the hostile relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. CIA was continually trying to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro. The Kennedy administration already launched an attack on the island, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, and Castro and Khrushchev uh, saw the missiles as a means of deterring further U.S. aggression. U.S. was in a tight spot. The challenge of the Cuban Missile Crisis was to get the nukes out of Cuba, you know, without starting an apocalyptic war. President Kennedy was uh, briefed about the situation October 16th, and he immediately called together a group of advisors and officials known as the Executive Committee, or XCOM. For nearly the next two weeks, the president and his team wrestled with the diplomatic crisis of epic proportions, as did their counterparts in the Soviet Union. After many long and difficult meetings, Kennedy decided to place a naval blockade, a ring of ships around Cuba. The aim of this so-called quarantine was to prevent the Soviets from bringing in more military supplies. He demanded the removal of the missiles already there and the destruction of the sites. On October 22nd, President Kennedy spoke to the nation about the crisis in a televised address. He notified Americans about the presence of the missiles explained his decision to enact a naval blockade around Cuba and made it clear that the U.S. was prepared to use military force, if necessary, to neutralize this perceived threat to national security. Following this news, many people feared that the world was on the brink of nuclear war. And again, real bad for overall nuclear PR. The world watches and waits. A crucial moment in the unfolding crisis arrives on October 24th when Soviet ships bound for Cuba near the line of U.S. vessels enforcing the blockade. Oh, a lot of buckle, buttholes puckered so tight right now. An attempt by the Soviets to breach the blockade would likely spark a military confrontation that would have quickly escalated, very likely into a nuclear exchange. But the Soviet ships stopped short of the blockade. The tense standoff between the superpowers continues through the week in October 20, and on October 27th, an American reconnaissance plane is shot down now over Cuba and an, a, a U.S. invasion force is readied in Florida. So back to being real tense. The 35-year-old pilot of the downed plane, Major Rudolph Anderson, is considered the only U.S. combat casualty of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I thought it was the last Saturday I would ever see, recalled U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, long after this was all over. Uh, But luckily for Florida and Roy motherfucking Disney, fucking mom killer, uh, both leaders would avoid uh, nuclear war. I would want to. October 26th, Khrushchev sent a message to Kennedy in which he offered to remove the Cuban missiles in exchange for a promise by U.S. leaders not to invade Cuba again. The following day, the Soviet leader sends a proposal uh, that the USSR will dismantle its missiles in Cuba if the Americans remove their missile installations in Turkey. 
And that deal would remain secret for over 25 years. Although the Soviets did remove their missiles from Cuba, they also escalated the building of their military arsenal. The missile crisis was over. The arms race was not. On October 28th, the crisis drew to a close. Uh, even though we still have nukes in Turkey pointed at Russia to this day. Suck a bag of nukes, strong pony boy Putin. Putin? Putin? Uh, I can't believe we got away with that one. Anyway, death and destruction uh, had been avoided back in 1962. Uh, but even though immediate annihilation in the Cuban Missile Crisis had been avoided during the 60s, various environmental disasters were now taking center stage in the American media. And Americans are worrying about a different, slower kind of death. Americans watched televised reports of napalm use in Vietnam as well as major floods, Italy's 1963 Vaillant uh, Dam catastrophe, uh, hurricanes, earthquakes, such as the 1964 Alaskan earthquake, extreme blizzards like the one in Chicago in 1967. The American public are starting to rally behind environmentalism more rigorously in an effort to prevent our, our precious blue marble from becoming a wasteland, particularly the, the uh, new young hip generation. Rachel Carlson's best-selling book, Silent Spring, published in 1962, introduced many Americans to the devastating effects of the large-scale use of pesticides, especially DDT. Meanwhile, in 1963, there were signs of a lessening of tensions between the Soviet Union and the U.S., more atoms for peace. In his commencement address at American University, President Kennedy urged Americans to re-examine Cold War stereotypes and myths and called for a strategy of peace that would make the world safe for diversity. President Kennedy told Americans in June of 1963, for in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. Two actions also signal the warming in relations between the superpowers, the establishment of a teletype hotline between the Kremlin and the White House, and the signing of the Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty on July 25th, 1963. Uh, that year, the doomsday clock is set back to 12 minutes to midnight. So that's good. It had stood at seven minutes to midnight during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. But again, 90 seconds to midnight right now. That doesn't feel good. Uh, 1964, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb debuts. Released on January, uh, released on January 29th, 1964, the film caused a good deal of controversy. Its plot suggested that a mentally deranged American general could order a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union without consulting the president. Uh, one reviewer described the film as dangerous, an evil thing about an evil thing. Another compared it to Soviet propaganda. Although Strange Love was clearly a farce with the comedian Peter Seller playing three roles, it was still criticized for being implausible. An expert at the Institute for Strategic Studies called the events in the film impossible on a dozen counts. A former deputy secretary of defense dismissed the idea that someone could authorize the use of a nuclear weapon without the president's approval saying nothing, in fact, could be further from the truth. When Failsafe, a Hollywood thriller with a similar plot, uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, opened later that year, it was criticized in much the same way. The incidents in Failsafe are deliberate lies. General Curtis LeMay, the Air Force Chief of Staff, said, nothing like that could happen. Interestingly, despite public assurances that everything was fully under control, in the winter of 1964, while Dr. Strangelove is playing in theaters and being condemned as propaganda, there was nothing to prevent an American bomber crew or missile launch crew from using their weapons against the Soviets. And Kubrick knew this. Uh, he researched the subject for years, consulted experts, worked closely with the former a RAF pilot, Peter George, on the screenplay of the film. George's novel about the risk of accidental nuclear war, Red Alert, was the source for most of Strangelove's plot. Uh, unbeknownst to both Kubrick and George, as top official of the Department of Defense, 
had already sent a copy of Red Alert to every member of the Pentagon's Scientific Advisory Committee for Ballistic Missiles. At the Pentagon, the book was taken seriously as a cautionary tale about what could go wrong. Even Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara privately worried that an accident, a mistake, or a rogue American officer could actually start a nuclear war. So the fear was legitimate. Uh, Coded switches to prevent the unauthorized use of nuclear weapons were finally now added to the control system of American missiles and bombers uh, to prevent this from happening. Pretty crazy how pop culture, the military, science, and the government can all intersect, right? And how pop culture can affect governmental decisions. Uh, Back to 1965, that year following the Soviet Union's lead in launching nuclear reactors into space, the U.S. launches SNAP-10A. The objective of SNAP-10A, this reactor, was to produce a minimum of 500 watts of constant electricity for a one-year duration or longer. The SNAP system weighed in at less than 950 pounds, uh, including instruments and shielding. The SNAP reactor was designed to be remotely started and operated in space, which is pretty fucking cool. Uh, This way, any hazardous radiation associated with the nuclear fission reaction is not produced until after the reactor safely reaches orbit. On April 3rd, 1965, this device is launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base and placed into a 500 nautical mile orbit around the Earth. 12 hours after launch, the nuclear reactor is automatically brought up to operating temperature and initially produces more than the 600 watts of electrical power. Following 43 days of successful operation, the reactor is shut down as a result of a high voltage failure in the electrical system of the Agena spacecraft. All flight test objectives were met with the exception of the expected length of operation. The now now non-functioning reactor remains in polar orbit today. Uh, And then something less fun happens. In 1966, the U.S. Air Force accidentally drops four nuclear bombs over Spain. Seriously. Oopsies. Uh, Lo siento, España. On January 17th, 1966, a B-52 bomber collides with a KC-135 jet tanker over Spain's Mediterranean coast and drops three 70-kiloton hydrogen bombs near the town of Palomares and one in the sea. The bomber was returning to its North Carolina base following a routine airborne alert mission along the southern route of the Strategic Air Command. When it attempted to refuel with the jet tanker, the B-52 collided with the refueling boom of the tanker, ripping the bomber open, igniting the fuel. The KC-135 then fucking explodes, killing all four crew members immediately. Uh, But four members of the seven-man B-52 crew managed to parachute to safety. None of the bombs were armed, thank God, but explosive material in two of the bombs that fell to Earth did explode upon impact, forming craters and scattering radioactive plutonium over the fields of Palomares. A third bomb landed in a dry riverbed and was recovered relatively intact, and the fourth bomb fell into the sea at an unknown location. So, fun. For a while there, just just a big nuke somewhere out there in the water. Palomares, a remote fishing and farming community, was soon filled with nearly 2,000 U.S. military personnel and Spanish civil guards rushing in to clean up the debris and decontaminate the area. The U.S. personnel took precautions to prevent overexposure to the radiation, but the Spanish workers who lived in a country that lacked experience with nuclear technology did not. Eventually, some 1,400 tons of radioactive soil and vegetation were shipped to the U.S. for disposal. Uh, No indication of health issues have ever been discovered among the local population in Palomares, thankfully, according to official reports. Again, you can trust those or not. Meanwhile, at sea, 33 U.S. naval vessels were involved in the search uh, for the lost hydrogen bomb. Using an IBM computer, experts tried to calculate where the bomb might have landed, but the impact area, too large for an effective search. Finally, an eyewitness account by a Spanish fisherman led investigators to a one-mile area. And on March 15th, a submarine spots the bomb. And on April 7th, it is recovered. Damaged, but intact. 
Uh, this was not the first or last accident involving American nuclear bombs. Uh, as a means of maintaining first strike capability during the Cold War, U.S. bombers laden with nuclear weapons were circling the Earth ceaselessly for decades. Forgot about that. How fucking terrifying. Imagine Russia doing the same thing. In a military operation of this magnitude, it was inevitable that accidents would occur. The Pentagon admits to more than three dozen accidents in which bombers either crashed or caught fire on the runway, resulting in nuclear contamination from a damaged or destroyed bomb and or the loss of a nuclear weapon. That same year, the fuel core of the Enrico Fermi, the godfather, experimental breeder reactor partially melts. In October of 1966, during a power ascension, a zirconium plate at the bottom of the reactor vessel becomes loose and blocks sodium coolant flow into some fuel subassemblies. Two subassemblies start to melt. Radiation monitors uh, alarmed, you know, radiation monitors alarm. They, the alarms fucking go off is a weirded word there. Fucking word. God damn it. Weirdly worded. Blah, so much science. And the operators manually shut down the reactor. Luckily, no abnormal releases to the environment occurred. Uh, three years and nine months later, the cause had been determined, cleanup completed, fuel replaced, and Fermi 1 is restarted. And then two years later, 1968, we start to close in on the subject of today's suck. In Pennsylvania, on the Susquehanna River's Three Mile Island construction starts of the first of the two core reactors, Unit 1. Metropolitan Edison, a subsidiary of General Public Utilities, began construction of TMI-1 at the north end of the island. They would begin TMI-2 the following year in 1969, just south of TMI-1. Also in 1969, an important event happens that raises the environmental consciousness for millions of Americans. In January of 1969, the Union Oil Well in Santa Barbara, California, spills more than 200,000 gallons of oil into the Pacific Ocean over 11 days. And half a year later, that June, oil and chemicals floating on the surface of the Cuyahoga River in Ohio burst into flames. Images of such disasters broadcast across the country helped fuel a growing outrage over the state of the environment, especially among young radicals. And all that leads to Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970. 20 million Americans protest against damage to the environment. I didn't realize there was that many people. And speak out against their concerns over our treatment of the earth. In New York, 250,000 people flood Fifth Avenue uh, after Mayor John Lindsay agrees to uh, to stop traffic for two hours between 14th and 59th streets all the way up to Central Park. On Miami, supporters of Eugene McCarthy, the anti-war presidential candidate in 1968, they stage a parody of the Orange Bowl parade called the Dead Orange Parade about environmental concerns. Uh, Though a few of these urban events made the biggest splash in the press, the true impact of Earth Day would come collectively from the more than 12,000 events scattered around the country. Again, attended by an estimated 20 million Americans. Many were held at high schools and colleges, uh, featured more than 35,000 speakers from scientists to folk singers to members of Congress who would adjourn for the day. In response, Congress creates the Environmental Protection Agency following increasing concern over pollution and environmental issues. And this would all lead right into an energy crisis. By the early 1970s, American oil consumption in the form of gasoline and other products was rising even as domestic oil production was declining, leading to an increasing dependence on oil imported from abroad, which we still deal with today. Despite this, Americans worried little about a dwindling supply or a spike in prices and were encouraged in this attitude by policymakers in Washington who believed that Arab oil exporters couldn't afford to lose the revenue from the U.S. market. Uh, These assumptions were demolished in 1973 when an oil embargo imposed by members of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, uh, led to fuel shortages and sky-high prices throughout much of the decade. 
The oil embargo was due to President Nixon's support of Israel, which was then fighting the 1973 Yom Kippur War against Egypt and Syria, who were strong allies with many of the OPEC countries. In October, OPEC cut off supplies of oil to Israel's main supporters, like the U.S. and the Netherlands. In the three frenzied months after the embargo was announced, the price of oil shot from $3 per barrel to $12. After decades of abundant supply and growing consumption, Americans now face price hikes, massive ones, and fuel shortages, causing lines to form gasoline stations around the country. Local, state, national leaders called for measures to conserve energy, asking gas stations to close on Sundays, asking homeowners to refrain from putting up holiday lights on their houses. In addition to causing major problems in the lives of consumers, the energy crisis was a huge blow to the American automotive industry, which had for decades turned out bigger and bigger cars and would now be outpaced by Japanese manufacturers producing smaller, much more fuel-efficient models. Though the Yom Kippur War ended in late October, the embargo and limitations on oil production continued, prolonging the crisis. The embargo was finally lifted in March of 1974, but oil prices remained high, and the effects of the energy crisis lingered throughout the decade. In addition to price controls and gasoline rationing, a national speed limit was imposed to conserve gas, right? Limited speeds nationwide to 55 miles per hour, the most efficient. Uh, daylight savings time was adopted year-round for the period of 1974 and 1975. Fucking weird. Having a darker morning but longer afternoon light equated to a 1% energy saving that equated to 20,000 to, uh, 20, to 30,000 tons of coal not being burned each day nationwide. Year-round daylight saving time was initially supported by 79% of the public, but then that support dropped to 42% after one winter. <laughs> one winter of people going to work in the dark and kids going to school in the dark, and everyone was like, you know what? Actually, fuck that. As both environmental groups gained political traction and the country continued to realize that its dependence on fossil fuels had created this instability, more and more people started looking towards renewable energy sources like uh, solar and wind power, as well as nuclear power. And it's in this context that Three Mile Island starts production. During a time when traditional energy sources are failing and nuclear power seems like it could be the future. But also more and more people are worried about the technology's ability to degrade the environment. Nevertheless, Three Mile Island Unit 1, TMI-1, a pressurized water reactor starts commercial operation in 1974. Uh, it actually continued operation until 2019. It was a relatively trouble-free facility setting recent records for time between unscheduled shutdowns. TMI-2, on the other hand, encountered construction delays, then repeated unscheduled shutdowns starting when it first began operation in April of 1978. The reactor's operators, struggling with its faulty performance, were led to falsify operational data in order to avoid continual reports to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the further interruptions of the reactor's operation the commission might have required. And that's really not good. Right? This is what I fear about nuclear power. People going against the advice of scientists and engineers and taking dangerous shortcuts in the name of profitability. Uh, the accident that would occur on March 28, 1979 seemed at its inception just one more glitch in an operation that had yet to become smooth. Partly for that reason, the operators were uh, misled, not misled, into actions that turned the glitch into a major accident that wrecked the TMI-2 reactor traumatized the surrounding population and drawing the attention from around the entire world. But before we get into that, let's talk about something very shady. On November 13th, 1974, something would happen that would make many people very skeptical of nuclear power and other kinds of powers behind it. That day, 28-year-old Karen Silkwood is killed in a car accident near Crescent, Oklahoma, north of Oklahoma City. Silkwood worked as a technician at a plutonium plant operated by the Keir McGee Corporation. 
and she had been critical of the plant's health and safety procedures. In September, she had complained to the Atomic Energy Energy Commission about unsafe conditions at the plant. At a meeting with the commission in Washington on September 27th, Silkwood and two of her colleagues from the plant charged that officials there had endangered the lives of its workers. And then on the night of November 5th, Silkwood was polishing plutonium pellets that would be used to make fuel rods for a breeder reactor nuclear power plant. At about 6.30 p.m., an alpha detector mounted on her glove box. The piece of equipment that was supposed to protect her from exposure to radioactive materials went off. According to the machine, her right arm was covered in plutonium. Further tests revealed that the plutonium had come from the inside of her gloves, right? The part of her gloves that was uh, only in contact with her hands, not the pellets. Plant doctors monitored her for the next few days, and what they found was unusual. Silkwood's urine and feces samples were heavily contaminated with radioactivity, as was the apartment she shared with another plant worker. But no one could say why or how that alpha activity had gotten there. Uh, so-called alpha activity. Uh, in fact, measurements after her death indicated that Silkwood had ingested the plutonium somehow, but no one could figure out how or why. After work on November 13th, Silkwood went to a union meeting before heading home in her white Honda, and soon police were summoned to the scene of an accident along Oklahoma State Highway 74. She'd somehow crashed into a concrete culvert, uh, was dead by the time help arrived. An autopsy revealed that she had taken a large dose of quaaludes before she died, which would have uh, made her doze off at the wheel. However, an accident investigator found skid marks and a suspicious dent in the Honda's rear bumper, indicating that a second car had pushed Silkwood off of the road. So just a bit fucking suspicious, you know, almost like someone had spiked her drink. Then maybe someone else, you know, helped her along to her death by forcing her off the road. Why would someone want to kill her that night? She was on her way to a meeting with a union representative and a reporter for the New York Times, reportedly with a folder full of documents that proved that Kier McGee or Kerr McGee was acting negligently when it came to worker safety at the plant. However, no such folder was found in the wreckage of her car, lending credence to the theory that someone forced her off the road to prevent her from telling what they knew or what she knew. Five days after her death, November 18th, New York Times reported that a high-ranking union official said today that the death last week of a woman who had raised safety questions about one of the two commercial Pinto Bureau factories in the United States might not have been an accident. Silkwood's father sued Kerr McGee, the company settled for $1.3 million plus uh, or minus legal fees. And then Kermigee closed its Crescent plant in 1979. And the press around this really doesn't look good for the nuclear power industry. People are wondering what other plants are hiding secrets. Uh, what other people are being killed to keep these secrets hidden? Like how dangerous is all this shit really? Jumping back to 1976, uh, let's talk now about Atomic Man. And yes, there was a person given the name of Atomic Man, a real living person. Not some generic toy made by the makers of Fighting Man. New from the makers of Fighting Man, Flying Guy, Warrior Woman, and Attack Cat. It's Atomic Man. Atomic Man is from the future. Atomic Man has a laser gun and x-ray vision. Atomic Man can shrink himself. Atomic Man can big himself. He can melt your face with radiation gas. Yes, his gas is radioactive and he carries nukes in his Atomic Man fanny pack. Nukes, nukes in his fanny pack. I said nukes, nukes in his fanny pack. Feel the future with Atomic Man. Be the future with Atomic Man. I said nukes, nukes in his fanny pack. I said nukes, nukes in his fanny pack. Feel the future with Atomic Man. Be the future with Atomic Man. 
Complete your action hero people set today. Fighting Man, Flying Guy, Warrior Woman, Attack Cat, Atomic Man, and coming soon, Karate Lady and Spy Person. <laughs> Sorry. I hope that was enjoyable for you. I uh, enjoyed that. It also uh, felt a bit ridiculous. Sometimes uh, I'm like, why? Who, who am I? Uh, okay. Of course, uh, Atomic Man was <laughs> not part of a generic knockoff action figure set. Now, in 1976, workers would be contaminated after an explosion at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. And I just want to keep listening to that music, but I'm not going to. Due to being exposed to exceptionally high levels of radiation contamination, one worker, Harold McCluskey, will be dubbed Atomic Man. Uh, at the time, McCluskey had been working on columns filled with special exchange resins in a glove box at the plutonium finishing plant used to recover radioactive americium, a byproduct of plutonium production for weapons production. Uh, the laboratory had been closed for five minutes as a result of a strike, and McCloskey was wary of resuming this particular work, remembering earlier warnings of working with resins that were unattended for that long of a time. But his boss said to proceed. After adding nitric acid to columns containing a americium and other radionuclides the column exploded spraying leaded gas nitric acid and radioactive materials into the face of mccluskey in seconds mccluskey received 500 times the amount of radiation considered safe for one to receive over an entire lifetime thousands of times greater than anyone contaminated for example at the fukushima uh you know meltdown and greater than many of those who responded to chernobyl mccluskey was only five feet from the blast his protective respirator was torn from his face. Metal, glass, and rubber were embedded in his skin. Nitric acid seared his face and eyes, and radioactive particles coated some of his body and his airways. McCluskey had to be removed from the ambulance by remote control and transported to a steel and concrete isolation tank, where he spent the next three weeks cut off from any personal contact. Holy shit, how terrifying for this poor bastard. He was so radioactive that his body would set off Geiger counters 50 feet away. Uh, during the next five and a half months, it was touch and go for the radiation worker. McCluskey was physically scrubbed, cleaned up, and given over 500 injections of an experimental drug. It's a, it's a word about fucking a thousand letters long that I gave up on trying to pronounce. And it, it helped his body eliminate the radioactive material. Although the accident changed McCluskey's life and ended his career, everyone said he remained in good spirits throughout his recovery. While shunning the spotlight, whenever McCluskey did speak about this incident, he considered it an industrial accident and said he continued to support nuclear power. He said that the concentrated nitric acid appeared to have hurt him more than the radiation did. An investigation into the explosion confirmed that the resin mixture had become unstable exactly as McCluskey, as McCluskey feared, and the government finally settled in 1977 with $275,000 uh, plus lifetime medical expenses being covered. This accident was one of those unusual events. It provides a lot of critical data on human biological effects of radiation. So the government also wanted to study him after he died. Since McCluskey received such high radiation doses, it was surprising he did not die from any radiation-induced cancer or other radiation effects. He ended up dying at the age of 75 from congestive heart failure. And that was the result of a long-standing coronary artery disease he had. The government autopsy showed McCluskey had zero evidence of precancerous or cancerous lesions. Radiation is so fucking crazy because it's all about chances and odds. You don't always get cancer from radiation. It just significantly ups your chance of getting it. Despite having his, uh, you know, uh, odds of cancer getting dramatically increased, McCluskey still did not get it. Uh, and I'll talk more about uh, how radiation kind of ups your chances a little bit later too. Now back to Three Mile Island, TMI-2 begins operation in April of 1978. 
And as I mentioned, things are faulty from the get-go. Less than a year later, 4 a.m., March 28th, 1979, the worst accident in the history of the U.S. nuclear power industry begins when a pressure valve in the Unit 2 reactor at Three Mile Island fails to close. This incident would be a massive interrupter in what had seemed like steady progress towards a nuclear power future. As historian James Mahaffey notes, by the 1970s, the United States had made it through the experimental phase of nuclear energy without any show-stopping problems. Three Mile Island would not only become that show-stopping problem, but it would also call into question the nuclear acceptance that had been pushed on people through appeals to patriotism, government programming, entertainment, and more. A lot of it we've gone over for decades. Let's go through this partial meltdown now, minute by minute. At four in the morning, March 28, 1979, operators trying to unclog some piping in the secondary steam-generating water circulation system accidentally blocked the flow of water, stopping removal of heat from the reactor. Within just 10 seconds, all of the following events occur. The cooling water filling the reactor vessel heated by the core gets hotter and its pressure rises. A relief valve at the top of the pressurizer tank, the so-called pilot-operated relief valve, PORV, opens automatically, steam escapes. But the temperature and pressure of the water in the primary system continues to rise because heat generated by uranium fission in the reactor's core is no longer being removed from the reactor cooling water in the steam generator. And fission is how nuclear power plants create electricity. In very simple terms, nuclear energy originates from the splitting of uranium atoms, a process called fission. This generates heat to produce steam, which is used by a turbine generator to generate electricity. Because nuclear power plants do not burn fuel, they also do not produce greenhouse gas emissions. How the uranium atoms are split by the reactors, that's a, that's a longer explanation. All that's important for this episode is that it doesn't take much energy to do so compared to how much energy rods full of uranium pellets produce. Uh, Anyway, if the reactor starts getting too hot, control rods are thrust down into the reactor to stop the fission, cool shit down, no more energy production, no more heat, no more possible meltdown. The nuclear fission chain reaction in the uranium fuel is stopped completely. The pore of relief valves should now close automatically, and the indicator light in the control room says that, that that it is closed. But in fact, that valve is stuck open. Uh, There was another warning light that was on, but it was obscured by a little piece of fucking paper. Uh, There were so many indicator lights in this control room. A second light indicating that all was not right was also on, but not noticed by officials. It wasn't typically a big red flag, danger, danger type of light. At 4.02, just two minutes into this, with the pore of relief valve stuck open, the pressure in the head of steam at the top of the pressurizer tank drops, allowing water in the pressurizer tank to boil violently, steam out throughout the open valve. The reactor is losing its important cooling water. The fallen pressure says leak to the automatic controls, which turn on pumps to inject more water into the reactor. But the operators, not knowing that the pore of relief valve is stuck open and the water is escaping through it from the reactor, and remembering earlier occasions when these emergency pumps had come on without a reason, they see no reason to add water. On the contrary, the violently boiling water creates the appearance of the pressurizer becoming filled with water, a condition that the operators have been trained to prevent. So the operators therefore turn off the pumps, and that's a big fuck-up. Although the production of heat by nuclear fission is stopped completely by the insertion of the control rods, the uh, radioactivity created in the fuel during months of operation of the reactor continues to generate a lot of heat. 160 megawatts of heat immediately after the control rods go in, then falling over the first hour to 30 megawatts, and over the next three hours to 20 megawatts. Okay, from 4.05 to 6 a.m., the water in the reactor boils away, leaving more and more of the reactor's fuel, quote, high and dry. The operators disbelieve the various indications of serious trouble including rising levels of radiation in the reactor buildings. Lacking any direct indicator of the water level in the reactor, they fail to grasp what is happening. The uranium fuel, intensely hot, is reacting chemically with the zirconium tubing from the inside, 
while superheated steam is reacting chemically with the zirconium from the outside. Do I truly know what any of that means? Fuck no. (laughs) Never took a college level chemistry course, but I trust that multiple sources reporting this are correct. The fuel rods are rupturing. That is uh, bad. Uh, Backing up to 6.18 a.m., finally recognizing that the pore of relief valve could be open, the operators close a manual backup valve. But it is another hour before it occurs to them that if the relief valve was open this entire time, uh, then that reactor could be then that reactor could be running short of water. At 7:20 a.m., realizing what's happening now, pumps are turned on to inject water into the reactor. The core is finally bathed again in cooling water, but the water cannot fully penetrate the mass of collapsed and now melted fuel rods. And this dense conglomerate continues to heat itself up. By 7:45 a.m., there are at least 20, perhaps as many as 60 operators, supervisors, and other people in the control room. Although none are yet ready to believe that the core has been uncovered, radiation levels in the power plant buildings are so high that Nuclear Regulatory Commission regulations require the declaration of a general emergency. While state and federal officials are being informed of elevated radiation levels, unbeknownst to all, a molten mass of metal and fuel some 20 tons is spilling into the bottom of the reactor vessel. The bottom of the reactor vessel is steel, five inches thick, but even that thickness of steel will not be expected or is not expected to hold up for more than a few hours against the kind of heat that can be generated by a mass that size. 8.25 a.m., WKBO, the local Harrisburg radio station, uh, alerts local listeners that the Three Mile Island uh, plant is experiencing, quote, difficulties. Unfortunately, not many people tune into this report, leaving many relying on word of mouth, and even those who had heard the broadcast don't have much information to go on even when the Associated Press confirms an accident of some kind shortly after the radio release. Because of this, the initial public response isn't one of deep concern, and then local newspapers relying on heavily relying on early statements from Metropolitan Edison, who want to assure the public that there's nothing to worry about, you know, don't alert people to the true danger. The Harrisburg's The Evening News uh, confidently comforts readers in a headline entitled, Leak Poses No Danger to Populace. Uh, That night, TV 27 News, opens with Lieutenant Governor William Scranton, uh, reassuring everybody that everything is under control. Backing up to the morning of the meltdown, thankfully at 9 a.m., the reactor vessel is still holding firm and the molten uranium immersed in water does now gradually begin to cool. The real danger has passed without anyone knowing how great it had been. The reactor had come within less than an hour uh, of a complete meltdown. Things could have been really bad had a complete meltdown occurred, like Chernobyl bad, no one gets to live in or near Harrisburg for possibly thousands of years bad. More than half the core was destroyed or molten, but it had uh, not broken its protective shell and no radiation was escaping. And now the PR machine swoops in, trying to sway public opinion in a favorable direction. The plant's parent company, again, Metropolitan Edison, downplays the crisis, claims that no radiation has been detected off plant grounds, but then the same day inspectors detect slightly increased levels of radiation nearby as a result of a contaminated water leak. Pennsylvania governor, uh, Dick Thornburg, yes, fucking more Dick, uh, he is a Richard, uh, suck for fucking littered with Richard Dix. Uh, this Dick considers calling an evacuation, but decides against it as the crisis is believed to be over a crisis that never really was could have been, but wasn't by that evening. The condition of the reactor seems to be improving and radiation levels in the TMI two buildings already seem to be falling. Now begins the oddly long, slow process of accepting the major damage to the reactor's core, uh, that it has in fact occurred. Uh, the next day, March 29th, metropolitan Edison holds a press conference offers reassuring words to the public. Spokesman Jack Herbing will later say that he knew he was bungling this press conference, but didn't know how to course correct. He hadn't been prepared to take on the role of spokesperson and was in a tricky situation as information was demanded at a time when he simply 
did not know what the fuck was happening or how to communicate what he did know, but he felt pressured to make announcements anyway. A desire for optimism in the face of uncertainty also meant that Herbine would diminish the problem, assuring the public that everything was okay when he wasn't totally sure that was true. Uh, and soon that won't look good in light of other information. Public attitudes were already shifting by this point as papers like the Scranton Times offered front page headlines articulating growing concerns over the event doubting Metropolitan Edison's claims. For the Scranton Times, the accident had already become the most serious in American nuclear industry history. Harrisburg's The Patriot, meanwhile, claimed that this was not an isolated incident, told us readers that Three Mile Island had brought a legacy of trouble to the area. Right? If it bleeds, it leads. Paint the picture to be as fucking horrific as possible. Who cares if that causes unnecessary panic? Panic sells papers. The accident now dominates the papers, with so many articles bringing in stories related to nuclear testing and past nuclear accidents, as if to make the Pennsylvania crisis one of so many disasters. The sky is falling, right? Wake up, sheeple. Stories about terrorism suggest that the worst could happen at the plant. Did the Russians do it? The Chinese? The Cubans? There are reports that many past dangers had not been divulged to the public by the authorities. This accident likely one of so many disasters. In all the coverage, nobody agrees on what exactly is happening or what uh, will happen. It's all a matter of speculation. One former local resident explained, everything was so conflicting in the news reports. You'd hear one local reporter saying that there's nothing to worry about. You hear the national news, the place is blowing up. Quickly, a web of misinformation is being spun as optimistic PR, conflicting reports from the plant itself, fear-mongering articles, and local rumors all intertwine. Back at the plant, by the evening of the 29th, nuclear engineers and public health officials are beginning to confront the fact that major damage has occurred to the reactor. They still didn't know how major, but they're concerned about the very real possibility of large quantities of radioactivity escaping from TMI. On Friday, March 30th, a bubble of highly flammable hydrogen gas is now discovered within the reactor building. Shit is actually not over. Uh, This bubble of gas was created two days before when exposed core materials reacted with a superheated steam. Back on March 28th, a small amount of this gas had exploded, releasing a small amount of radiation into the atmosphere. At that time, plant operators uh, had not registered the explosion. To them, it sounded like a ventilation door closing. But now they realize what happened and word gets out and it causes a panic. (laughs) I actually watched uh, old news footage on YouTube of people fucking fleeing Harrisburg. Like literally running out of their homes, jumping into cars, speeding away, parents pulling their kids out of school and driving off. Uh, There was this guy with a megaphone. He looks uh, so 70s too. It's fucking sweet. Looks like my dad when he's back in the 70s. He's got the fucking stash and his long hair. He's in the back of a pickup truck being driven around Harrisburg, uh, literally yelling through a megaphone, run for your lives. (laughs) And I got stuck uh, last night when I was putting together uh, kind of finishing touches on the research. And I just started thinking about like in those situations when someone's like, you know, run for your lives, like the classic, like run for your lives uh, line. What if somebody actually took that advice? Like just literally started running. You don't, you don't get any more information. You don't grab anything. Like, like one second, this guy's like fucking walking home from the market. You know, he's going to watch, I don't know, uh, all in the family or whatever, whatever's on fucking TV. Got a little grocery bag full of some milk, couple boxes of mac and cheese, maybe some potato chips, an orange or two. And then he hears this guy just run for your lives. And he actually listens and he just starts running. He doesn't even know why he should be running, where he should be running, you know, from or to, he just doesn't want to die. You know, just turns and runs and pretty soon he's just like, he's throwing the groceries. They're slowing him down and he's just, he's got to run. He's got to run like the wind and, and he makes like a mile and then he starts to cramp up because he doesn't normally run. And so now it's, it's, it's a bit more of like a, a run for a bit, then walk for a bit. Then sometimes he's kind of just lean over, hands on knees, sucking in air. You know, he's wincing and walking with his hands on his head sometimes and running, then walking, then repeating all this. 
and eventually he gets outside of town. He still doesn't know what the fuck's going on. He just knows he's got to run for his life. And, and he's off the highway. He's out in the woods now. And he's fucking exhausted. He's so tired. He's thirsty. But he's got to run. Megaphone, megaphone man said so. He, he's got blisters now. And they're bleeding. And he's dehydrated. But he's got to keep moving. You know? And then he literally just collapses out in the woods. Just alone from exhaustion. And he wakes up. And he tries to run. But his blisters, they're so bad now. So now he's limping along. Just stumbling across a, a creek. And he drinks out of it. And then within the hour, he has violent diarrhea. Uh, now he's limping and shitting on his fucking bloody feet. And he's gotten rid of his shoes and he collapses again. And he's in and out of consciousness. He's crawling for his life. But he can't stop. He can't stop crawling. And then he just passes out. He's dying. And then meanwhile, back home, everything's fine. Everything's totally fine. Uh, the guy was wrong. <laughs> the panic calmed down. Now there's missing posters for this son of a bitch, you know, in his uh, totally fine, not nuked neighborhood. Sorry, that may have been painful. I just find run for your lives, megaphone guy, so not helpful in this situation. <laughs> a lot of times in these situations, panic kills more people than what might occur. Uh, definitely panic kills more when this guy actually doesn't fall, as, is, as was the case with Three Mile Island. I wonder how many people fled, left their jobs, took money out of the bank, hid out for weeks, just completely fucked their lives up for nothing in the end. Like the Sullivanian cult, that cult we covered a few weeks back, they panicked right when this is happening. Right now, they're panicking, fleeing New York, heading to Florida, all for nothing. So this panic, uh, this is the panic that a lot of people remember when you say Three Mile Island. Uh, not the meltdown, the, but the panic that follows. Uh, right, The wait to see if the hydrogen bubble is going to burst and somehow just destroy the area. Right, they had Again, they had kind of, a lot of people had uh, a nuclear power plant confused with a nuclear bomb. This panic atmosphere and the reasons for it are described well in the book Crisis Contained. The Department of Energy at the Three Mile Island by Philip Cantillon and Robert C. Williams, published in 1982, they would write, Friday appears to have become a turning point in the history of the accident because of two events. The sudden rise in reactor pressure shown by control room instruments on Wednesday afternoon, the hydrogen burn, which suggested a hydrogen explosion became known to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that day, and the deliberate venting of radioactive gases from the plant Friday morning, which produced a reading of you know, 1,200 millirems directly above the stack of the auxiliary building. What made these significant was a series of misunderstandings caused, in part by problems of communication within various state and federal agencies. Because of confused telephone telephone conversations, ah, the telephone game, between people uninformed about the plant status, officials concluded that the 1,200 millirems reading was an off-site reading. They also believed that another hydrogen explosion was possible, that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had ordered evacuation, and that a meltdown was conceivable. Garbled communications reported by the media generated a debate over evacuation. Whether or not there were evacuation plans soon became academic. What happened on Friday was not a planned evacuation, but a weekend exodus based not on what was actually happening at Three Mile Island, but on what government officials and the media imagined might happen. On Friday, confused communications created the politics of fear. And you know what? If it was me, I probably would have bolted as well. <laughs> uh, it's easy to examine this now, uh, at least for a couple of days. Right? Better safe than sorry. As I mentioned, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NRC, officials in Washington, after 48 hours of underestimating the seriousness of the accident, now overestimate the danger. And unsubstantiated reports of dangerous releases of radioactivity actually lead Pennsylvania Governor Dick Thornburg on the NRC's advice to recommend that pregnant women and young children leave the area immediately. And that really freaked people out. Of course it did. This led to the panic the governor had hoped to avoid. And within days, over 100,000 people had fled the area. And I picture that that dude in the woods again, just fucking crawling through the trees. I gotta keep going. I gotta avoid the apocalypse. 
Continued media coverage uh, made even more people flee. Uh, check this out. The later health-related behavioral impact of the Three Mile Island nuclear incident report found that out of its respondents, it was a survey, sorry, it's a report, 78% fled the area due to anxieties over conflicting information and subsequent distrust of authority and media information. And as people fled, that fleeing became the subject of even more ominous reports with correspondents describing how thousands have packed their luggage and left. Banks report many withdrawals. Telephone lines have been busy. People in different states are now getting worried. An article in the New York Times spoke of a wave of alarm spreading across the country with heightened anxiety in states as far away as South Carolina. And government officials had their fears too about the amount of radiation released into the atmosphere. Late that night, Food and Drug Administration officials roused chemical manufacturers from bed with urgent requests for a quarter million bottles of potassium iodide solution. Why? A few drops of this taken in time will block the uptake in the thyroid gland of cancer-causing radioactive iodine, perhaps the most uh, immediately dangerous of the radioactive substances to which reactor fuel is converted by nuclear fission. On Saturday, March 31st, researchers figure out that early on Wednesday morning, uh, much of the reactor's core had stood above the water level than they'd previously believed. Consequently, it was now certain that zirconium tubes forming the cladding around the intensely hot fuel pellets would react chemically with the hot steam, pulling the oxygen out of H2O molecules and releasing hydrogen. This scenario is supported by the fact, not at first explicable, that at midday on Wednesday, there had been a sudden rise in the pressure in the containment building of almost two atmospheres. Almost certainly, this resulted from the rapid burning of hydrogen that had escaped through the porv from the reactor vessel and cooling system into the reactor containment building. Moreover, moreover, it is known that some oxygen and some hydrogen is continually being produced in the once again water-covered reactor core by the action of radiation on water molecules, breaking them apart into hydrogen and oxygen. Is there then, or will there soon be, enough oxygen inside the reactor vessel and cooling system for the large amount of hydrogen it holds to burn explosively? Again, NRC officials, albeit supported by the opinions and calculations of many experts, unnecessarily heightened fears by telling reporters that an, that an evacuation out to 10 or 20 miles might become necessary. Then on April 1st, President Jimmy Carter arrives at Three Mile Island to inspect the plant. And Carter, I didn't know this, was a trained nuclear engineer, not just a peanut farmer. Uh, he had actually helped dismantle a damaged Canadian nuclear reactor while serving in the U.S. Navy. Carter's background in physics assured people that he understood the severity of the situation. Uh, yet for many, the presidential vid- visit didn't smooth everything over, even though Carter wasn't alarmed. On the same day as the visit, CBS's Face the Nation interviewed Senator Gary Hart on the crisis. The Sunday morning segment was introduced with the statement that the news arising from the plant was difficult to follow. Quote, some of it seems contradictory. Some of it is hard to understand. Yeah, all this fucking nuclear stuff is hard to understand. There still wasn't clarity on what was going on, who would be affected, how serious it had been, and what the potential fallout would be. Meanwhile, speaking of a possible meltdown and the hydrogen bubble, Hart, chairman of the subcommittee on nuclear regulation, said there was a risk although hard to quantify, of a catastrophic accident and stated that if he lived close to the reactor, he would move his family out of the situation, uh, out, excuse me, if the situation worsens. But then later that afternoon, experts agreed that the hydrogen bubble was not in danger of exploding. Slowly, the hydrogen was bled from the system and the reactor cooled. Uh, At the height of the crisis, plant workers were exposed to unhealthy levels of radiation, but no one outside the Three Mile Island facility had their health adversely affected by the accident. Uh, none of those plant workers actually ended up dying uh, because of it. You know, at least uh, according to all the studies. The media, meanwhile, continues to stoke the fear flames. Now they're reporting not only on what had happened at the plant, but also on events across the country, implying they're all connected to Three Mile Island. 
Publications like Scranton's The Sunday Times reported nationwide panic on April 1st, reported protests in San Francisco, emerging lawsuits, emergency meetings in Nebraska, radiation checks in New York and West Virginia, and uh, demonstrations, you know, outside of San Francisco, all around California. (laughs) I love that they had emergency meetings uh, uh, held in Nebraska for some reason. Well, we need to reinforce our bunkers. A death wave of radiation is headed this way from Pennsylvania. The corn, the sweet, life-giving corn that our glorious state thrives on. It will not alone save us. And of course, there were demonstrations in California. Imagine big groups of people in California in the 70s just waking up, knowing that they're going to protest something that day. Just not sure what it's going to be. Uh, The next day on April 2nd, the Associated Press runs an article which appeared in many local papers, including the Scranton Times, stating demonstrations were now occurring globally, even in Japan, over the inherently unsafe nature of nuclear power. I wonder how many of the people protesting didn't know any more than I do, especially before this and similar episodes, about nuclear power. I'm going to guess 90% of the protesters at least had no fucking idea what they were protesting. Not really. I doubt it went much further than atomic bombs are scary. So nuclear reactors, also equally scary. I don't like scary stuff. Ban it now. On April 4th, 1979, Governor Thornburg uh, announces that the crisis is over on the Today Show. Uh, Good news, Dick. God bless good news, Dick. And and it was over, but not for the media. One of the biggest examples of sensationalism, fear-mongering reporting, arguably came from an article by the Associated Press published in various papers April 8th. The story was introduced with dramatic prose akin to a thriller novel. It read, In the darkness before dawn, in the chill mist that rises from the Susquehanna River, the atomic powerhouse on Three Mile Island defied its human keepers and threatened catastrophe. The next day, Time Magazine ran the feature article, A Nuclear Nightmare. And sensations reporting like this would continue throughout the rest of the year. In May of 1979, Harrisburg's The Patriot delivered a powerful and emotive story about nuclear testing alongside a report on a negligence lawsuit against Babcock and Wilcox, a nuclear power company. Uh, This article was nestled in the middle of uh, a William Hines article titled Still Plenty of Fallout Over 50s A-Bomb Tests When Science is Prostituted, Everyone Loses. Hines' article, which was introduced with the emotive imagery of child graves in St. George, focused on health concerns following radiation exposure from Nevada nuclear tests. The report spoke of leukemia and a conspiracy to cover up the health risks of nuclear fallout, which further delivered a damning blow to faith in the authorities and the, t- and the technology. Rather than look like conspiracy fear-mongering, since it was next to an article about a very real lawsuit, right? It looks very legit. Even when the intense media attention declined, articles continued to question the industry and the events of March and April 1979. The Tuscaloosa News from October 16, 1979, reported on findings of the Kemeny Report before it was officially released, and summarized that the report would show that the industry at large was run by people who don't know what they're doing or don't care. That same October, the Brian, Tri- the Brian Times described locals near the plant as human guinea pigs of the nuclear power industry. So were these stories trying to report the truth or were they just trying to stir up public fear to sell subscriptions? Maybe a little bit of both. Uh, definitely some of them were fear-mongering. Others weren't. Official statements, expert reports, government announcements may have genuinely attempted to add clarity. Their conflicting accounts, lack of reliable and consistent data, and mistakes only confused and angered the public, though. And then the media was quick to expose inconsistencies and question the legitimacy of those publications. How could the risk be minimal when other reports acknowledged that radiation was released? How could the citizens not be in danger one day but in danger the next? Did conflicting information prove the existence of a massive conspiracy? 
Well, with hindsight, we know more about what went down. And now nuclear meltdowns, you know, uh, in general, but people at the time, you know, were scrambling. Uh, and that meant that even though pregnant women and children were told to return on April 9th, signaling that the incident was officially over, many of those in the area were not convinced. The history of conflicting reports and retracted statements contributed to a sense that the locals had been lied to throughout the crisis. And it is funny how many of us will jump to conspiracy instead of incompetency, right? Especially when it comes to the government and the scientific community. Like, was there some big conspiracy being carried out by deceitful masterminds or did a bunch of people not really understand what the fuck was happening, but felt compelled to speak and fucked it up? Like, I especially think it's funny how many people generally think, uh, you know, politicians, for example, which was, you know, part of this mess are idiots. But then in a situation like this, they're suddenly also masterminds capable of pulling off a major conspiracy. And I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to conspiracies. I just, uh, like, I know the cover-ups have happened. I'm sure they continue to happen. It's just not my first go-to. My go-to is, well, of course there was confusion. You know, it's a very complicated issue and a lot of different humans were talking about it. And even the best humans make mistakes and poorly communicate a, a fair amount. And the rest of us fuck it up quite a bit. I'm more shocked when the calamity is handled almost flawlessly than I am when the situation is bungled like this one. Uh, Alan Ertl, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Pennsylvania's 17th District, commented on the apparent misdirection of the industry professionals, professionals saying, I don't think anyone can say they told us the absolute truth. Uh, a local resident who collected his child from school before evacuating told reporters that locals had been lied to and that the situation was graver than the authorities had admitted. Locals used terms like panic, distrust, cover-up, uh, described their situation as scary, prompting the son to declare that the trust, that excuse me, that trust was the biggest casualty of this event. Okay, after an anxious month, on April 27th, operators established natural convection circulation of coolant. The reactor core was now being cooled by the natural movement of water rather than by mechanical pumping. The plant was in cold shutdown, uh, that is, with the water at less than 100 degrees Celsius at atmospheric pressure. And now it was time to start cleaning up this mess. And this mess would take a long fucking time to clean up. The cleanup of the damaged nuclear reactor system at TMI-2 took nearly a dozen years and cost approximately $973 million. The cleanup was uniquely challenging technically and radiologically. Plant services had to be decontaminated. Water used and stored during the cleanup had to be processed. And about 100 tons of damaged uranium fuel had to be removed from the reactor vessel, all without hazard to cleanup workers or the public. A cleanup plan was developed and carried out safely and successfully by a team of more than a thousand skilled workers. It began in August of 1979 with the first shipments of accident-generated low-level radiological waste transported across the country to Richland, Washington, the Tri-Cities. Very impressively, uh, those workers got that waste across the country with nothing more than lead-lined backpacks and unicycles. I wish. That is a vision. Just a line of a thousand people on unicycles wearing backpacks full of nuclear waste. <laughs> just headed out on a 2,500-mile journey west. Uh, defueling the TMI-2 reactor vessel was at the heart of the cleanup. The damaged fuel remained underwater throughout the defueling. In October of 1985, after nearly six years of preparations, workers standing on a platform atop the reactor and manipulating long-handled tools began lifting the fuel into canisters that hung beneath the platform. In all, 342 fuel, uh, fuel canisters were shipped for, for long-term storage at the Idaho National Laboratory, Right, the, uh, a program that was completed in April of 1990. Of course, send us to Idaho. Uh, it was put into dry storage and concrete containers. During the cleanups, closing phases in 1991, final measurements were taken of the fuel remaining in inaccessible parts of the reactor vessel, 
Approximately 1% of the fuel and debris remained in the vessel. Also in 1991, the last remaining water was pumped from the TMI-2 reactor. The cleanup ended in December of 1993, when you had such a long time, when Unit 2 received a license from the NRC to enter post-defueling monitored storage. Early in the cleanup, Unit 2 was completely severed from any connection to TMI Unit 1. Uh, TMI 2 today is still in long-term monitored storage. No further use of the nuclear part of the plant is anticipated. Ventilation and rainwater systems are monitored. Equipment necessary to keep the plant in safe long-term storage is maintained. The unarmed unit, uh, unharmed Unit 1 reactor at Three Mile Island, which was shut down during the crisis, uh, did not resume operation until 1985. And then from its restart in 85, TMI-1 operated at very high levels of safety and reliability before being shut down in September of 2019. And that one reactor would power roughly 800,000 homes for years while active. 800,000 off of just one. Did that for decades. Okay, so what about the effects on people of all this? As you can probably imagine, the incident uh, greatly eroded the public's faith in nuclear power. As I've talked about, first of all, there was the fear of radiation-induced health effects. Because of those concerns, the Pennsylvania Department of Health for 18 years maintained a registry of more than 30,000 people who lived within five miles of the Three Mile Island at the time of the accident. The state's registry was discontinued in mid-1997, officially without any evidence of unusual health trends in the area. Like, none. Yes, people died of cancer. Yes, there were birth defects, but no more so than in the general population of the nation. More than a dozen major independent health studies of this accident, not studies funded by the government or some pro-nuclear group or corporation, showed no evidence of any abnormal number of cancers around TMI years after the accident. The only detectable effect was psychological stress during and shortly after the accident. Yeah, of course there was that. The studies found that radiation releases during the accident were minimal, well below any levels that may have been associated with negative health effects from radiation exposure. The average radiation dose to people living within 10 miles of the plant was 0.08 millisieverts with no more than one millisievert to any single individual. The level of 0.08 millisievert is about equal to uh, a chest x-ray. One millisievert, about one third of the average background level of radiation received by U.S. citizens in a year. In order for the lifetime risk of developing cancer to increase even slightly, doses above 100 millisievert during a very short time frame would be required. A dose of 100 millisievert would increase lifetime cancer risk by approximately 0.4%. So think about that. A dose of of 100 millisievert would increase your lifetime risk of cancer by less than one half of 1%. And no one living in the three mile area at the time of the incident received more than one millisievert. One one hundredth of the amount needed to increase cancer odds by less than one half of 1%. Uh, According to several sources, there isn't a single peer-reviewed non-anecdotal study proving any deaths or even any adverse health effects resulted from the Three Mile Island accident. Despite no one dying or even getting sick after the Three Mile Island partial meltdown, public support nationwide for nuclear energy fucking plummeted. Fell from an all-time high of 69% in 1977 to just 46% in 1979. And this is, uh, I think, a more important indication of how this affected everything. Construction of new nuclear power plants went on a hiatus for over 30 years. Two new plants were finally greenlit in 2013. And they're to be completed this year in Burke County, Georgia. The first commercial plants since TMI. Over four decades since a new plant became operational. But 60 new nuclear power plants became fully operational in the 1970s, before the meltdown. 60 in nine years. Then nothing for 44 years. The Three Mile Island incident drastically affected how the U.S. looked at solutions for energy. 
And many think this was for the best, right? They've claimed that all the study results saying no one was harmed by the meltdown are bullshit. Three eyewitness testimonials from 1989's Three Mile Island, The People's Testament, a series of interviews with approximately 253 Mile Island area residents from 1979 to 1988, done by Katajiri Mitsuru, professor of social psychology at Kyoto Sika University, and Eileen Smith, would claim that the residents had experienced more radiation than the government admitted to. Some said the ill health effects began immediately, like one woman only identified as Marie. Marie would describe walking back from her barn on March 28th. She said, you just got to feel funny. You just get an awful feeling in your body, just like you're, you're pinching, feeling going, th- uh, like a pinching feeling going through you, like electricity would be going through you. Do you ever get pinched with an electric fence? Uh, that kind of little shocks all the way through your body. You could feel it going through your system and in my nose and in my mouth. And then you could taste like a copper taste in your mouth. I could taste that. And then I just got to feel so bad. Nothing was biting me, but you just had that feeling. I just started to get weak. I just got real weak. I thought I was scared. I guess I just folded up and fell over. I couldn't get up. I didn't have no strength to get myself up or my brain or something wasn't working. I couldn't get my coordination to get up. I don't remember if I was conscious or not. I guess I wasn't conscious when I went down because I don't remember going down, see? And I fell on the stones and I was lucky that I didn't get any broken bones. And then Marie died of thyroid cancer 13 years later in 1992. Coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Could be that Marie died of unrelated cancer. Uh, Did she even get radiation sickness from the original partial meltdown? Well, the diagnostic criteria for radiation sickness says the first symptoms are nausea, vomiting, as well as anorexia and possibly diarrhea, which occur from minutes to days following exposure. The symptoms may last episodically for minutes up to several days. And the Mayo Clinic says overall symptoms are nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, headache, fever, dizziness and disorientation, weakness and fatigue, hair loss, bloody vomit and stools from internal bleeding, infections, and low blood pressure. Maybe her symptoms fit, or maybe she had, say, a panic attack. The Mayo Clinic lists the following symptoms for that. Sense of impending doom or danger, fear of loss of control or death, rapid pounding heart rate, sweating, trembling or shaking, shortness of breath or tightness in your throat, chills, hot flashes, nausea, abdominal cramping, chest pain, headache, dizziness, lightheadedness or faintness, numbness or tingling sensation, feeling of unreality or detachment. So some overlapping symptoms, right? Dizziness, nausea, headache, etc. The scared feeling she had lines up uh, more with the panic attack than radiation sickness. Also with true radiation sickness, patients die within several months of exposure, not many years later. Uh, Self-diagnosis, it's almost never a good idea, right? Peek around on the net or prior to the net, skim around through some, uh, some medical books or something and you can quickly convince yourself you have a variety of horrific illnesses because the symptoms overlap so often. Uh, the Washington Post of May 2nd, 1979, quoted Roger Matson, director of the NRC's Division of System Safety, as saying that incomplete information led to erroneous worry about the possibility of a hydrogen explosion that would break open the containment. There was never any danger of hydrogen explosion of that much power, Matson stressed. We just asked the staff the wrong questions, and that is a very bitter pill. On the same date, the Atlanta Constitution reported on the matter as follows. A Nuclear Regulatory Commission official said Tuesday the agency had been wrong when it reported a risk of an explosion in the hydrogen bubble that formed inside the stricken Three Mile Island nuclear reactor last month. We fouled up, said Roger Matson. Uh, but he said NRC technicians didn't realize for 36 hours that the danger was not present. The amount of concern was entirely undeserved. There never was any danger of a hydrogen explosion in that bubble. It was a regrettable error 
it originated in the staff. Okay, so how did this uh, partial meltdown that seems to have hurt no one, how did it affect nuclear power as a whole? Very negatively. With so much trust from the public lost, it quickly became easier to promote other alternative energy sources. In June of 1979, Carter announced his intent to increase funds now for solar energy development. Then in 1980, the Raghavan Report comes out. The foreword in the summary from the Raghavan Report argued that the principal deficiencies in commercial reactor safety are not hardware problems, but management problems. Not facility errors, but human errors. The most serious problems, the author stated, will be solved only by fundamental changes in the industry and in the NRC. This made people even more afraid of nuclear power, even though the report actually argued that power plants themselves were safe uh, and management issues could be worked out. In June of 1996, 17 years after the TMI-2 accident, Harrisburg U.S. District Court Sylvia Rambo dismissed a class action lawsuit alleging that the accident caused health effects. The plaintiffs appealed, but the judgment was upheld by the appeals court. In making her decision, Judge Rambo cited, one, findings that exposure patterns projected by computer models of the releases compared so well with data from the TMI dosimeters available during the accident that the dosimeters probably were adequate to measure the releases. Two, that the maximum offsite dose was possibly 100 millirem, aka one millisievert, and that the projected fatal cancers were less than one. Uh, sounds like a weird way to say zero, but I think they're just allowing for the small chance that maybe, but probably not one person might have gotten cancer thanks to the TMI incident. Three, the plaintiff's failure to prove their assertion that one or more unreported hydrogen blowouts in the reactor system caused one or more unreported radiation spikes, producing a narrow yet highly concentrated plume of radioactive gases. And Judge, Ram- Judge Rambo concluded, the parties to the instant action have had nearly two decades to muster evidence in support of their respective cases. The paucity of proof alleged in support of plaintiff's case is manifest. The court has searched the record for any and all evidence, which construed in a light most favorable to plaintiffs, creates a genuine issue of material fact warranting submission of their claims to a jury. This effort has been in vain. 1999, TMI-1, purchased by Amerigen, or Amerigen, uh, a joint venture between British Energy and Pico Energy. 2003, the BE share was sold so the plant became wholly owned by Exelon, Pico's successor. In 2009, the TM1 operating license was renewed, extending its operating lifetime by 20 years to 2034. Immediately following this, both steam generators were replaced as TMI's largest capital project to date. 2017, Exelon announced it would shut down TMI1 unless it received some support from the state. And then the reactor was eventually shut down in September of 2019. And with Three Mile Island now decommissioned, feels like a good spot to get out of this big old timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So what did America's nuclear power industry learn from the Three Mile Island incident? Well, training reforms are uh, are among the most significant outcomes of the TMI-2 accident. Training became centered on protecting a plant's cooling capacity, whatever the triggering problem might be. At TMI-2, the operators turned to a book of procedures to pick those that seemed to fit the event. Now operators are taken through a series of yes-no questions to ensure first that the reactor's fuel core remains covered. Then they determine the specific malfunction. This is known as a symptom-based approach for responding to plant events. Underline it is a style of training that gives operators a foundation for understanding both theoretical and practical aspects of plant operation, and it has been working. We still have 92 operational nuclear power plants in the U.S. today, and there hasn't been another accident as serious as the TMI incident since 1979. And again, that incident 
based on study after study, didn't actually kill anyone. The TMI-2 accident also led to the establishment of the Atlanta-based Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, INPO, and its National Academy for Nuclear Training. These two industry organizations have been effective in promoting excellence in the operation of nuclear plants and accrediting their training programs. INPO was formed in 1979. National Academy for Nuclear Training was established under INPO's guidance in 1985. TMI's operator training program passed three INPO accreditation reviews since then. Communications and teamwork, emphasizing effective interaction amongst crew members, became part of TMI's training curriculum. Uh, Close to half of the operator's training was in a full-scale electronic simulator of the TMI control room. The $18 million simulator permitted operators to learn and be tested on all kinds of accident scenarios. Disciplines and training operations and event reporting that grew from the lessons of the TMI-2 accident have made the nuclear power industry safer and more reliable. Those trends have been promoted and tracked by INPO to remain in good standing. A nuclear plant must meet the high standards set by INPO as well as the strict regulation of the US NRC. Thanks to all this, the number of significant events decreased from 2.38 per reactor unit in 1995 to uh, 0.1 at the end of 1997. So should we reinvest in nuclear energy? Well, the broad majority of Americans, 69%, favor the U.S. taking steps to become carbon neutral by 2050, according to a January 2022 Peer Research Center survey. But while some advocates suggest that nuclear power, a source that emits no carbon, should have a more prominent role in the nation's energy makeup, the public overall continues to express mixed views about it as an, uh, as an energy source. Around a third of U.S. adults, 35%, say the federal government should encourage the production of nuclear power, while about a quarter, 26%, say the government should discourage it. Another 37% say the federal government should neither encourage nor discourage the production of nuclear power. Should we invest in solar energy? Eh. I looked at alternatives to nuclear power five years ago uh, with the Chernobyl suck in March of 2018. And back then... You know, uh, I think I associate nuclear power with nuclear weapons too strongly. I think a lack of understanding when it comes to nuclear power taints our perception of it. A nuclear power plant is not a nuclear bomb building factory, not capable of the same level of destruction. Nuclear weapons, scary as fuck. Nuclear power plants, yes, potentially scary, but not nearly as scary as I once thought. Nuclear radiation is, of course, deadly. And I'm very open to the possibility that a lot more people have been harmed by radiation from plants and nuclear waste than we have been told. But also we need energy. We live in an electric world, the world's economy, totally reliant on electricity. To act like we don't need it is childish and unrealistic, in my opinion. So working on the premise that we need it, what is the best way to get it as efficiently and cleanly as possible? Wind power is still not reliable enough to effectively power the world. Way too inconsistent. Sorry, wind farms. Hydroelectric power is limited to rivers and the world's still not making any more rivers. So its usefulness also limited. Solar power is getting more efficient, but a big problem with solar power that I didn't really address in the Chernobyl suck is waste. Those panels do not last forever. They expire. And in the next few decades, based on the limited amount of solar power we currently have in the U.S., there will be hundreds of thousands of tons of very expensive to recycle solar panels, and only small parts of them can be recycled, and the rest will just be filling landfills. Waste is a big problem with wind power as well. Modern windmills have massive turbine blades that will contribute an estimated 720,000 tons of waste to landfills in the next 20 years. Nuclear power creates far, far less waste than wind or solar and way less than coal. And coal, uh, the worst when it comes to carbon emissions, right? Also, air pollution from coal-filled power plants has been linked to asthma, cancer, heart and lung ailments, neurological problems, acid rain, global warming, and more. 
And there are biomass plants that can run on, say, wood, but they can't come fucking close to providing enough energy to fill demand. Might as well try and, you know, fucking power the world on a bunch of uh, fireplaces or something. Uh, barring a massive level seven, level seven melt, uh, reactor meltdown, nuclear power is the most environmentally friendly option by far. Yeah, the potential for uh, Chernobyl does exist, situation like that, but it's a very, very remote possibility. Uh, the generation of electricity from a typical 1,000 megawatt nuclear power station, which would supply the electrical needs of more than a million people, produces only three cubic meters of vitrified high-level waste a year uh, if the used fuel is recycled. The U.S. generates about 2,000 metric tons of spent fuel each year, powering almost 20% of the population with all these old reactors. 2,000 metric tons might sound like a lot, but the volume of the spent fuel assemblies is actually very small because it's very dense. The amount is roughly equivalent to less than half the volume of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, right? Just that per year. Nuclear plants are not filling up landfills and they emit zero carbon. Also, we're not going to run out of uranium. Nuclear waste is recyclable. Once reactor fuel is used in a reactor, it can be treated and put into another reactor as fuel. According to the scientific science I've looked at, we could fuel all of the world's power needs with nuclear reactors for the next 4 billion years. So is the best way to go green to go nuclear? Should we maybe really re, uh, revisit the power potential of nuclear reactors? Do we need to re-educate ourselves when it comes to atomic energy? I think we do, Right. I look forward to your updates on this one. Am I wrong? Am I right? Uh, did I, uh, you know, uh, did, did misled, not my protesters, concern for the environment actually really fuck over the environment when they became outraged over Three Mile Island and politically killed what at the time was an increasing reliance on the greenest energy source we have? I'm not sure. What does Atomic Man have to do with all this? Do I want to become filled with radiation so I can fucking time travel and shoot lasers out of my eyeballs? I don't know. Let's head to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, at 4 a.m. March 28th, 1979, the Three Mile Island incident began when a pressure valve in the Unit 2 reactor failed to close. Cooling water contaminated with radiation drained from the open valve into adjoining buildings and the core began to dangerously overheat. After the cooling water began to drain out of the broken pressure valve, emergency cooling pumps automatically went into operation. Left alone, these safety devices would have prevented the development of a larger crisis. However, human operators in the control room misread confusing and contradictory readings and shut off the emergency water system. By the early morning, the core had heated to just over 4,000 degrees, just 1,000 degrees short of a complete meltdown. By the time the crisis ended and the fears of a dangerous hydrogen bubble bursting had been dispelled, experts still had no idea how close Three Mile Island was to a meltdown and deadly radiation drifting across the country. Number two, the media coverage of Three Mile Island would generate most of the event's infamy, although it wasn't all because of media fear-mongering, or at least not intentional fear-mongering. In the early days of the incident, conflicting statements from various levels of government, Metropolitan Edison, and experts led to journalists trying to get at the real truth and stoking the public's fears in the process. But many of these statements uh, were conflicting because they did not know what the fuck was happening. Not even experts always know. They were still trying to figure out what was going on in the first place. And this generated a misinformation firestorm. There were undoubtedly all people who, uh, undoubtedly also people who wanted to use the incident to sell papers or increase TV ratings and played on the atmosphere of fear and confusion to do so. And I just want to share a random thought I'm having right now that I did not put in my notes, but I'm picturing that guy who fucking ran that I made up uh, from this incident. Like he's still out there today. He's been living on fucking like roots and just bugs and small animals. And he's been able to catch with his bare hands for decades. Still worried about an apocalypse. 
Uh, number three, nuclear culture has a long history in the U.S. from the development of the atomic bomb and intense national pride to the many movies that both glorify nuclear power and warn of its destructive potential. Many of the ones on the glorifying side have been influenced deeply by the U.S. government. In the 1950s, atomic was the word of the day with kids' toys, postcards, and many consumer products featuring a sunny outlook on nuclear power. This would change with the Cold War and increasing nuclear tensions before Eisenhower attempted to change public perspectives with his Atoms for Peace campaign. But a series of environmental disasters in the 1960s and 70s would again turn people's opinions against nuclear power. And by the time the Three Mile Island incident occurred, the atmosphere was ripe for panic. Number four, no civilians were exposed to any significant doses of radiation. And statistics taken in the decades following the incident have discovered no increased rates of cancer or other ill effects according to numerous peer-reviewed studies. That doesn't mean nuclear power plants are entirely safe. However, uh, it does seem that the danger they have presented thus far has been grossly exaggerated. And number five, new info. Where is the future of nuclear power headed? Well, the answer might surprise you. In most of the world, not just the U.S., uh, the industry has been a retreat for a long time due to public distrust, uncertainty over what to do with radioactive waste, and the high cost of new reactors. Uh, there could be an interesting solution on the horizon. In 2019, Jose Reyes, a nuclear engineer and co-founder of New Scale Power, headquartered in Portland, Oregon, said he and his colleagues can revive nuclear power popularity by thinking small. Reyes and New Scale's 350 employees designed a small modular reactor, SMR, that would take up 1% of the space of a conventional reactor. Whereas a typical commercial reactor cranks out a gigawatt of power, each New Scale SMR would generate just 60 megawatts, so 6% as much. But for about $3 billion, New Scale could stack up to 12 SMRs side by side, like beer cans in a six pack, uh, to form a power plant kicking out 720 gigawatts, 72% of the uh, power of a conventional reactor. Well, actually, yeah, 72, I'm sorry, megawatts, 720 megawatts. I said the wrong thing, but 72% of the power of a conventional reactor. And to make these mini reactors safer than the big boys, New Scale engineers have simplified them, eliminating pumps, valves, other moving parts while adding safeguards in a design they say would be virtually impervious to meltdowns. And to make the reactors cheaper, the engineers plan to fabricate them whole in a factory instead of assembling them at a construction site, cutting costs enough to compete with other forms of energy. The design has already worked its way through licensing with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the company has lined up first customer, a utility association that planned to start construction on a plant right here in Idaho in 2023. So get ready for my extra two arms. A simulation plant was installed at the Center for Advanced Energy in Idaho Falls. Uh, Idaho. I had no idea it was such an innovative state when it came to nuclear power. Yeah, the new plant will be built uh, in the desert just west of Idaho Falls. My dad lives in Idaho Falls. I hope he doesn't fuck this up. Keep an eye on him, right? Southern Idaho dad watch. Maybe he's getting tired of just killing, you know, people one at a time. And he wants to sabotage a nuclear reactor to kill thousands. Uh, I really hope this thing works beautifully and supplies a lot of Idahoans with a lot of clean power and maybe maybe changes the narrative on all this. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Three Mile Island nuclear disaster has been sucked and I'm not even glowing. Don't even have an extra toe. Haven't had a kidney dry up and disappear. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all their help in making Time Suck again this week. Big thanks to Lindsay Cummins running so much behind the scenes shit. Thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for producing and directing today. The Art Warlock, Logan Keith, as well, for helping in production. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run our socials with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist, 
Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for initial research this week. I thought she did an awesome job of giving me a great start, making a, a, a heady topic interesting. Thanks to all the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we're going to go back to true crime and cover the zebra murders. We're going to talk about some terror. From October of 1973 to April of 1974 in San Francisco, the entire city lived in fear. There was a murderer thought to be on the loose who didn't seem above killing just about anybody. And the police couldn't catch him. And that was partially because there was way more than one killer. Businesses were closing early. Only a few people were brave enough to walk alone at night. The busy city practically became a ghost town as soon as the sun set. No one felt safe because anyone who fit a very generalized profile could be a target. Old, young, men, women, even children being killed. So who were the killers? Well, they were nation, uh, they were, excuse me, members of the Nation of Islam, and they believed that white people, just in general, needed to be eliminated. Their names were Anthony Harris, JCX Simon, Larry Green, Manuel Moore, Jesse Cooks, and there were other accomplices. We know that they killed 15 people, possible they killed many more victims. The MO in most cases was to shoot the victim and quickly flee. Wasn't until April of 1974 when one of the men involved uh, called the police that the violence ended. If this man hadn't come forward, possible that the killing spree could have lasted for uh, many more months, if not years, before the task force brought him down. Why did all this happen? We'll find out next week on Time Suck. And right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, uh, Derek Skeet Skeet Mullet from the Caesar Suck has been located. He's written in. He's a Time Sucker. Take it away, Skeet Skeet. Hey, working my ass off today, listen to the Julius Caesar suck, and what do I hear? My name, used in vain, I thought, but no. As the story went on, I felt like a hero. For context, my name is Derek Werman. Uh, it's like saying German, but replace a G with a W. And I do have a mullet. And I will become the shiny shit thief of the emperors. I didn't know my destiny would change to this, but I will embrace it and fulfill it the best I can. Thank you for giving my name that I once thought was just the name of an oil rig purpose with that said i'm off like a dirty shirt to go do skeet skeet mullet shit bye derek skeet skeet mullet worman well fuck yeah skeet make uh make people in power tremble at the sight of your powerful mullet take those shiny coins make those hot hard father daddies nervous when they see the derek hail derek skeet skeet mullet and now for a good life hack Super sucker Robert K figured out a great way to get out of certain Cummins law situations. I thought this was brilliant. You just flip it around. Act like somebody else was tormenting you with my nonsense. Bobbert writes, Dear Suckmaster, the one and true king of the suck, cautious feeder of Bojangles, reluctant worshiper of Lucifina, and all other titles granted to you through Almighty Nimrod. You got me, son of a bitch, but luckily it ended well. I had to turn my truck into the mechanic to have some much needed repairs done to it, and subsequently, I had to drive my wife's car around for a week and a half. As I'm catching up on Sucks, back uh, the Sucks Back catalog, and listening to the great Emu Wars, the mechanic called me to let me know my truck was ready. I finished the episode, or at least thought I did, when my wife jumped into the car so we can go get the truck. She dropped me off, and I was settling up the bill when the other mechanic started the truck. At that moment, my phone's Bluetooth connects, and your shitty Aussie accent kicks in with a tirade of cunt lines. Luckily for me, I spent time in the intel field with the U.S. Army, and I was trained to not react too quickly to changing situations. So throughout the entire closing of that episode, the mechanics and I are just staring at each other as I am resisting the urge to dig into my pocket and turn off my phone. 
Luckily, that was the last downloaded episode, so I knew that it would eventually end, but it sure felt like an eternity to get there. My panic mind settled as it ended, and then I asked, what the hell are you guys listening to? Sounds interesting. Of course, they don't know, and they apologized for that. So in essence, I reversed the Cummins Law. <laughs> Great podcast, keep it up. The hardest three out of five stars I've ever given, and sorry, not sorry for the length of the message. With respect, Robert K. That's fucking genius. I love that you got them to apologize uh, for what you were forcing them to listen to. That is some Jedi mind trick shit. Got to get you hooked up with Derek Skate Skate till you could uh, do some damage in the world. And now some happy news from a grateful sack, Andrew Woods, who writes, hello, Dan. I have some pretty neat news. I like neat news uh, that I've been looking forward to sharing with you and all my fellow cult members for quite some time. This month, I am proud and excited to celebrate my 10th year of being in remission. Quick backstory. When I was 15, in between freshman and sophomore years of high school, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor roughly the size of a racquetball on top of my temporal and frontal lobe. From there, I began treatment immediately, starting with a brain surgery to remove the aforementioned tumor. Uh, Pathology came back that it was a mixed germ cell tumor. Like the best way of describing it is as a clusterfuck of four cancers. My God, the surgeons were able to remove 98-ish percent of the growth in an operation lasting nine and a half hours. The remainder of the growth was about the size of a nickel. After recovering from surgery, I began chemo, which lasted from August to November, few weeks after that, I had another surgery on my brain, which removed the little bit that was left from the first operation and the chemo had turned it from a, any remnant of tumor to pure scar tissue. That December, my mom and I moved to Houston so I could receive radiation therapy at MD Anderson that lasted eight weeks total. And upon arrival back home, I had a handful of tests run uh, that met with my oncologist who told me I was in remission. Thank God. Throughout the long, nauseous nights and days spent in the hospital, I would regularly pass the time listening to your stand-up, which always drew a laugh and helped my spirits uh, be kept up while going through such a rough patch. So thanks for that. Should you choose to read this on the show, please give a shout out to the amazing staff at CHOA, uh, Scottish Rite, particularly in the AFLAC, the AFLAC unit, Cancer Wing, and any listeners who are fighting the big C. Unrelated, I was able to see you in person at the Punchline in Atlanta this past year, which was amazing. There will be no apologies for the length of this email. Thank you again, your loyal cult follower, Andrew W. Well, fucking thank you, Andrew, for continuing to uh, fight, 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 fight. What an awesome story of survival. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, I could give you a few laughs in the middle of uh, what sounds like a terrifying nightmare. And I do wonder if after all that, you cherish each day a little more than the rest of us, right? Than most of the rest of us. I hope so. And yes, shout out to the amazing staff at, uh, is it CHOA? Was that how you say the acronym? CHOA Scottish Rite, particularly the AFLAC unit, Cancel Wing, and any listeners who are fighting the big C. Hail Nimrod. Truly thank you heroes for dedicating your lives to saving the lives of others. And now for a good excuse for me to address some uh, occasional episode skipping. Smooth sack Jimothy McWhistle shits. And yes, that is what his name says in the email. That is fantastic. Jimothy McWhistle shits. Writes in with a jazz update of sorts. Kill for the jazz. I'm one of those people who experiences uh, bad magic shows skipping around sometimes, regardless of the podcast player. Currently happening in the Time Suck app, and while listening to this week's Leopold and Loeb Suck, it decided to start doing it right at the ass end of the episode. It was skipping perfectly between words and went on for a couple minutes. Excuse me. So I was simply left thinking, hot holy Roman fuckfest, Dan. Uh, You are going hard on the jazz thing before I finally realized it was the stream acting up. Anyways, you guys are great. I won't suck your dick any more than that for now. Just a tip, Father Daddy. (laughs) Just a tip. Uh, Well, thank you, Jimothy. Uh, Kill for the jazz. Kill everyone you love. 
Give in to your hate. Uh, that would have been extra weird to hear that just going on minute after minute. If, if you're having trouble, if anybody's having trouble with episode skipping, uh, I've been wanting to say this because I think I forgot. We have looked into this issue multiple times and, and it does not seem to be a feed issue from what we're continually told on our end. Seems to be a streaming issue on certain devices and, you know, just not proper connectivity. And the best way to avoid it is to download episodes. So the, this issue, not unique to our podcast. It's an industry-wide problem. For, again, from what I've been told under over and over, we can't fix it on our end. Happens to far less than 1% of users. And again, to fix it, you download the episode. If a downloaded episode then skips, please reset your player. And if it still skips, please erase, re-download the uh, episode. And if that doesn't fix it, well, then email us with as much detail about the problem as possible to uh, don't fucking care at time. No, uh, <laughs> we do care to Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. And we will pass it along to the tech team in charge of podcast feeds at our provider, Simplecast. And that is it. Uh, thank you, everyone. I hope this episode made sense for this uh, not too scientifically educated, but sometimes scientifically interested meat sex. Time suckers, I needed that. We all did. I'm not sure why I just referred to myself in the plural sense. I'm one. I'm one exact. Not not more than one. Uh, thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Don't worry about a nuclear meltdown this week. It's probably not going to happen. Probably not going to have your kidneys dry up inside your body. Probably just going to have solid electricity to do shit like make sure your phone and computer stays charged so you can keep on sucking, motherfucker. Bad Magic Productions Nukes in this fanny pack I said nukes Nukes in this fanny pack Feel the future with Atomic Man Be the future with Atomic Man I said nukes Nukes in this fanny pack I said nukes Nukes in this fanny pack Feel the future with Atomic Man. You can be the future with Atomic Man. Come on. It's kind of fun. Play, rewind it and then just do it again with me. Make you feel good. It's hard not to smile when you're doing that shit. This fucking little ditty is so fun. Thanks, Jeremy Blake, for creating Power Up, no copyright, 8-bit music. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.